Hello, everyone, and welcome to Between the Sheets, episode number 322. I'm your host, Chris Zellner, joined as always by my co-host David Bix and Span. And Bix, it's time to go way back in time, 1984. Yes, year of Mr. Otsuka. Yeah, we'll talk about him in a minute. But yeah, the last time we did this era was show number 10 with our uh, dear friend, good old Will, good helmet from uh, from Texas. You mean this part of 84? Because we've done yeah, other 84 shows. But well, about, yeah, this part because we did the week before mm, this. Okay. <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, it's been, it's been a while since we delved in this era. We talked about some of this in pa- past Patreon shows, too. But, uh, yeah, we got a uh, quite the show this week. We'll have a guest showing up later, though. Uh, John McAdam will be joining us uh, in the second half of the show, basically. So, uh, me and Bits are going to go with the first half of the show solo here as we discuss the week that was September the 29th through October the 5th, 1984. All right. So, let's go to All Japan Pro wait, Wrestling. No, wait, yes, Chris. Japan. We have to talk about our new Patreon show. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Yes, I slipped my mind. Yes, we have, have a since new... we just finished recording it. Well, I'm not. <clears throat> I just wasn't thinking. I'm sorry. Yes, we have a new Patreon show to talk about as we're discussing part one of two. Yes, it's two parts of the birth of the New World Order. Or as uh, Hulk Hogan called it twice in his first promo, the New World Organization of Wrestling. Of wrestling. But uh, anyway, so yes, we're discussing uh, the genesis of the NWO from Scott Hall debuting on Memorial Day to the end of July 1996. Uh, we figured that'd be a good stopping point since that was uh, the Nitro where Rey Mysterio Jr. was used as a lawn dart by Kevin Nash. And it's a very, very, very good show. Lots of interesting information. Um, Hall and Nash both their debuts. How Vince McMahon handled it on the air on Raw. Announced their departure, official departure from the company during the main event of Raw, out of nowhere, and then we have uh, all kinds of discussion on the, how WCW used the billionaire Ted Skits against WWF. We'll have a lot of stuff about the lawsuit, including some very interesting information that Jeremy Devitt puts out there regarding how WWF was handling their business creatively at the, uh, as they're competing against World Championship Wrestling and how. Tells a story about what happens to WWE after WCW dies. And we'll have Hogan turning, of course, at Bash at the Beach. What really happened there? What set that up? We have uh, some wild stories about some movie that Hulk Hogan was involved in at the time. I'm not going to go too far into that, but we'll talk about that. And all kinds of other stuff. Uh, other possible members of the NWO, who was named, who wasn't who got politicked out of a, a spot in the NWO and just all kind of stuff going on. So $5 a month at patreon.com slash between the sheets. You do that and you'll be good to go. You'll have all the audio we've done. And then now five complete years, five complete years of our Patreon as this is show number 60. So 60th show. So everybody, uh, if, if you haven't uh, subscribed to the Patreon yet, or if you've subscribed and then left, you need to get on back on, and you need to listen to the show, and you need to tell people about the show, because it's a pivotal time in wrestling history, and we cover it as good as anybody else does, as far as the 
the ins and outs. Yeah, we don't go in depth as far as, you know, playing a lot of clips or talking about matches, so to speak. We're talking about all the key stuff from the newsletters at the time, which includes the Wrestling Lariat, as well as Torch and Observer. A little too, Patreon. yes. Patreon.com slash Between the Sheets, $5 a month gets you access to that and tons more. Yes. So we'll have more on that at halftime. So be ready for that. All right, so let's go to Japan, Land of the Rising Sun, which is leaning off this show. Uh, not normally that happens, but all the major stories in our week is in Japan. And boy, are they. So let's start with All Japan Pro Wrestling. All Japan and Naoki Otsuka, the former New Japan promoter recently aligned with the promotion, shot Japan by signing the entire Riki Choshu army to contracts. And they were rest for three months before appearing. Choshu and Yoshiaki Yatsu were originally going to go to WF for a tour in October, but that won't happen. Yes, New Japan was going to send them to WWF in October, where they were going to supposedly feud with Adonis and Murdoch over the tag titles. Which kind of makes sense since the Briscoes thing seemed like it came out of nowhere. Yes. But who would have been the faces in that feud, though? You know, that's another. That's the other dynamic. I guess when you turn Adonis and Murdoch babyface, I mean... But we had the Adonis and Murdoch while Samoans deal, so there kind of was already something there, although the Samoans ended up being like babyfaces. Yes, but, the Samoans ended up being babyfaces by the time that prom- that program's over. Yeah, but that would have been interesting to see that. Um, don't know how it would have worked. And, and New Japan, you know, sitting in their wrestlers to WF that year was not the greatest track record with Maeda. Well, Which, yeah. wasn't Maeda technically sent by Shinma in the UWF, kind of? Uh, not really, because... when he beats Pierre Lefebvre for the international title, isn't there even, like, a UWF logo on the belt, too? I mean, maybe later on, but the story goes is that that tour... I mean, Adam soured, ...soured him on American wrestling. Right, but that's not the same thing as whether or not it, it was with New Japan or UWF. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I mean, it could have been. I mean, it could have been Shimba Base. Because so. I forget, when is when is the Pierre Lefebvre MSG match? Is that May? It's one of the non-televised shows. Which would mean March or May. Yeah, May. Okay, so by that time he's already left New Japan. I'm checking now. Um, May, n- no, it's March. So it is the March show. March 25th. May is Rene Goulet. So it's March 24th. I forgot March it worked tw- both. That's right, and there yep. used to be confusion over who he actually wrestled because of the, the two shows. Okay. Um, but UWF launches on April 11th, right? So UWF's already in play by that time. Or it's sometime, it's yeah. early April, I think. Yeah. I don't, I don't, it's, it's all weird at the time because we don't have the information that we we could have had, you know? Sure. If, and yeah, it's if, April 11th. If only like the, if we had Japanese Wrestling Journal or some shit like that telling that story of when dates and stuff happened and all that. Didn't I Ada write a book at some point? I'm sure he probably did. Yeah, we got to get more people translating those besides just, you know, Bahu and like the one or two other people who do it occasionally. <laughs> it's a lot of work, though. I get why people don't do it. It's just there's clearly a lot of 
a lot of history we don't know that's in them. Oh yeah, I mean, there's stuff here that you know comes out, you know that uh, that you know that, that people really probably don't know about, you know, in that way. Yeah. I'm I'm trying to see if I can find anything more concrete on that. Um, on the UWF side of it. I mean, basically, I mean, what I'm reading is that Shimba brokered the deal with WF, which re- resulted in UWF-WF relationship. And Maeda went to WF because of that deal. So, yeah, I mean, there's that. So he was, I guess, with the UWF office, but there's no date on when the UWF office began, just 1984. Hmm. So, I don't know. Anyway. Without a doubt, Giant Bob was pulling all the strings behind the scenes, but this has been smoldering since last year. The group got tired of Anoki spending too much on his reckless side business in Brazil. So they decided to try a coup d'etat and were temporarily successful. But Anoki managed to regain his president status for too long, and Oska was forced out of the company, although they kept using him as a subcontracted promoter. Uh, Bix, you want to do the Anoki side business deal for people that may not know what, understand what that is? Was this one? Which one was this? I I know I know he's embezzling, but I forget which side business this is. This because uh, this isn't the trying to sh- turn sugarcane into ethanol, right? I think that's separate. This is the uh, was it? Um, oh God, what's the name of that fucking company? Oh, Kagawa Express or some shit like that. That sounds familiar. Yeah like that yeah this is uh yeah but this is when he gets removed from power right and, the result, right and there was also the whole thing where Anoki, when he had people over for dinner there were custom leather-bound menus for each dinner <laughs> yeah and stuff like he was he was embezzling i mean what can you say yeah but you wouldn't know it i i just finished watching 1983 television and I'm in 1984 now, and you would never know anything's going on. It's amazing. Hmm. Other than the Tiger Mask leaving, I mean, you don't know what's going on with New Japan behind the scenes through their television. Everything is still status quo. So that's an interesting part about the whole thing as well. And the fans are, you know, hot as shit. I mean, that's one of the, some of the hottest wrestling you'll ever watch is that here in New Japan for crowd heat. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just crazy. And basically what happens, for those who don't know, what ends up saving Anoki and also leading in part to the UWF split is Anoki was more or less able to successfully scapegoat Asashi Shinma in the whole situation. Yeah, and then when he got his power back, Oska got his heat. Yes. He, I mean, he had to face the wrath of Anoki because Oska was one of the main guys behind the coup d'etat. So, yeah. Got to be careful sometimes, I guess. All right. O- Oscar got dissatisfied with his current role as a subcontractor promoter and knew that he could do more, so he decided to negotiate with Jaya Baba, who knew he needed to spark on his business, as All Japan was now the clear second banana to New Japan in every way. So they formed a relationship in June with their first card together being held on August the 26th. What's interesting about August 26th, 1984, Bix? August twenty sixth. I don't know. Really, I'm th- I'm thinking first. Wait, is that 
Mm, well, wait. For all to settle at all is July. August 26, 1984. I'm drawing a blank. I'm not born yet. Give me a break. The debut of Tiger, Masawa Tiger Mask. Oh, okay. His first match. At Danan Coliseum. Sold out Coliseum. Future. So are we to presume then that Otsuka brokered the relationship with the Iki Kajiwara or whoever? Uh, well, I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. It makes sense. And, I mean, that was a huge show. Um, Like, you look at that. And, I mean, they sold out the building. And the Dan Coliseum's a huge building at the time. Um, let me see what they did as far as the crowd. 13,500. Um, Brody Hanskins, Dorfunt, and Giant Bob. That was a, a hell of a match. Bloody match. And then you got uh, the Tiger Mask debut. Mighty Inouye over Sushinita. Shinru and Jumbo over Black... Crusher Blackwell and Jimmy Garvin. So it's not, you know, it's not the, the most stacked of shows, but it's the hell of a promoting job by Neha Otsuka, who was known for his great promoting. Yes. Which is why he's promoting for both New Japan and All Japan at the same time. So let's get more into that. Uh, um, New Japan got very upset Oscar for working with Baba and told him that he could not promote shows for both promotions and he had to choose. Oscar then told them he would sue them for damages and then told them he would form his own promotion with help from Baba and said that his promotion would bring unity to Japanese wrestling as top stars from both groups would want to work with him. Oscar told New Japan that he would poach everyone they had except for Inoki, Seiji Saguchi, the booker at the time, Kataro Hoshino and Katetsu Yamamoto, since they were all office. Otsuka's long-term goal is to establish basically a booking agency where he will employ wrestlers and maybe other forms of entertainers in the future. He will book his talent with All Japan as well as his other promotions. Hence, Japan Pro existing. Yes. Well, that explains that. Mm-hmm. Always kind of wondered about that, but that makes perfect sense. Yeah, I mean, they were talk- it was talking about how Otsuka was trying to get involved in um, concerts, uh, stand-up comedy, and other things. He was, he was trying to become a multifaceted promoter in Japan. Hmm. Interesting. Yep. Aren't there a lot of other people that uh, have their hands in all the entertainment in Japan? <laughs> what, don't yeah. they have a name for those people? I'm, I'm drawing a blank. Yeah. All right, so... New Japan got wind of what was going on. This is great, folks. And New Choshi was unhappy. So they decided to hold a rare company party on September 20th in Osaka after the show that night to try and persuade them to stay. Saguchi asked Choshu if he and his crew would jump to Otsuka's group, and reportedly they told him they weren't leaving. Otsuka then found this out. And later that night called Choshu and persuaded him and his crew to change their minds. The next day, Choshu and his crew were in Tokyo holding a press conference of Otsuka, announcing they were joining up with him. Kind of makes you wonder what kind of persuasion was used in that, Bix. Um, perhaps, uh, let's see, cleavers over fingers? <laughs> Saguchi was incensed about this and told the press that I was deceived by those dirty raccoon dogs. <laughs> That sounds like something he'd say if mobsters were involved, doesn't it? <laughs> like, dirt, I, I, I don't know anything dogs. about Naoki Otsuka. I don't want to just imply... I mean, granted, it's major league Japanese wrestling in the 80s. I'm sure just about everyone had ties to the Yakuza. But I don't want to just imply that a guy's Yakuza, but boy, does there seem to be a lot of coded messaging here. 
<laughs> Dirty raccoon dogs. Love that. According to magazine reports, Oskambaba spent a neighborhood of $1.5 million. Oh, wait a second. I just thought of something else. What? Um, what is a certain trait that Choshu has that's different from most of the New Japan roster? That he's uh, ethnically Korean. Yeah. What is a racial slur in Japan for Korean people? Dog people. Interesting. I, I made that connection right as we were talking just now. That's interesting. Aren't, isn't there at least one or two other guys in Ishingundan that are ethnically Korean too? Khan? Killer Khan? Wasn't he Korean? Is Killer Khan? How did Killer Khan was Korean? Let me see. I, I feel like there's at least one more, though. Let's see. Great. Yeah, no, he's just Masashi Ozawa. He doesn't have a Korean name. Joshi was also Mitsuo Yoshida. No, but still, we know his Korean name, <laughs> is what I'm saying. I'm trying to think, I'm was Hiro to... Saito, maybe? Or was he just billed as Korean in Stampede? And that's why I'm thinking that. Uh, Kim Duck was part of uh, Ishigen at the time, I think. And Kim Duck, yeah. Kim Duck is yeah. Korean, right? Yeah. Yeah. He's Kim, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was Tiger Taguchi, of course, in New Japan, but he was part of that group. But he was in WF, so... All right. Uh, according to magazine reports, Oskan Baba spent a neighborhood of one point five million dollars. Well, wait, Kim, what am I? Th wait, we're we're thinking about this wrong. Kim what? Duck's a real name. He's really Masanori. Oh well, no, wait. Kim Duck. Hello. Oh no, Kim Duck is his Korean name. Never mind. Sorry. Your think your connection is screwing up again. Oh uh, great. All right. Well, no, no, no. But I was realized I was reading the Wikipedia wrong. Yes, Mas Masanori Taguchi is his Japanese name, but Kim Duck is his Korean name. Alright, so Oskumba was in the $1.5 million to lure the 11 wrestlers jumping in Japan with Nippon TV being their main backers. Nippon will have to pay a lot more than that, too, because most of the 11 had signed contracts with TBSI that were bound until March of 1986. Well, that clearly can't be true because they debut on TV in January and I don't think there was any legal hurdles past them just having to sit at the end of whatever contracts that were. Well, contracts were different back then, though. It wasn't the one-year deals all mm. the time. But still... Something may happen. I don't know. Well, Oscar was said to have met with the president of TVSI and asked him to replace a Noki show or start up a new show with his new group, but he was refused. <laughs> TVSI spent the file suit for damages caused by the jumping of the 11 wrestlers, and Nepal TV was, will settle it by paying through the nose. As UWF did recently, paying $30,000 in the case of Yoshiaki Fujiwara and Nobuhiko Takata. Yeah. Oska's plans on bringing in Masa Saino back from the AWA in January. As Choshu is going to Minneapolis to visit his friend, but he can't wrestle there due to visa problems. Oska's also given his wrestlers bonus money because they won't be appearing in Elias shows until the legal matters are settled. The plans that All Japan will present 200 or so cards in 1985. And Otsuka will have 18 of his own shows using his crew, plus foreign talent after they work tours for Baba. And that's basically what happens. Yes, Japan. although the first couple Japan pro tours have their own foreign talent, but then later on they just use the all Japan foreigners. Yeah. Everyone was shocked by the news, and the immediately started speculating that this could begin the collapse of New Japan. Since they already lost all the UWF guys, and now the Choshu guys, and many were surprised that Giant Baba was that cutthroat to his rivals. Baba pretended to be shocked that, his, that this was going on, but said that if he was a wrestler working for Anoki, he would leave him too. 
Bobby even said Inoki lacks an ability as a business manager, and he brought this all upon himself. Well, you know what? He's not wrong. <laughs> no. <laughs> because Bobba's promotion in the past is concentrated on highly paid U.S. talent, his native talent, particularly younger ones, weren't paid nearly as well as Inoki's. Joshu and his crew jumping over will change that, as he wanted to rely on the big foreign names every tour, and the natives can get paid more. That that's a big difference in all Japan New Japan this era right here. Um, all Japan's native roster at this time, you take away Baba Jumbo and Tenru, and it's lacking, bad. I mean, they were overly dependent on the foreigners. And also, coming. I would say, what would you say, like? 81 through Anishin Gundam comes in is the most American the All Japan in ring style ever was, too. And it's with the most Japanese wrestlers pushed. Because, I mean, you look at the big angles, the big angles start with Russia and IWE guys coming in <clears throat> in uh, fall of 81. That's hot until Choshu turns a year later. Then you have basically a three way feud going on there for a while. All natives. And yeah, it's all natives in big in the big stuff. I mean, Hogan's mixed in, but Hogan, he's basically a quasi native at that time anyway. So I mean, you got this one major for and Andre. Well, that's New Japan though. I was talking about all Japan being more. No, I'm talking about when you mentioned Ishingundan. No, I said until Ishingundan came in. Oh, I'm talking about well, I'm talking about New Japan. So okay. you mentioned Ishingundan, I thought you were talking about New Japan. No, but yeah, but yeah, I mean that that's the thing now. um you know, all Japan is Brody and Hansen and, you know, the Fonks. DiBiase. DiBiase. Well, DiBiase. Gordy starting to come along. Gordy, yeah, but DiBiase was, I mean, he wasn't even that much of a regular. Not really until 85, no. And Gordy wasn't until 85. Uh, he came had some shots in 84 tours, but not as a regular. But... It's, it's all it's all these foreign foreign guys and Jumbo, Genru, and Baba. So, yeah, I mean they needed that shot in the arm, and uh, you know, it's a gun that coming in definitely gave them that in many ways. And bad as much as it helped them and hurt New Japan even more. Yes, yeah, because New Japan you losing the EWF crew and then going through this situation. Definitely uh, was a problem for them. They become so foreigner dependent. Yeah, and, and 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 not just foreigner dependent, but shitty foreigners, <laughs> and most of the time too. And all Japan had their share of shitty foreigners too, for God's sakes. I mean, who, why are we book, booking Carl von Steiger in 1985? You know, probably a favorite so. someone. All right, because Baba's promotion to pass, blah, 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 we read that. Public's attention, the fo focus turned to Tetsuya Fujinami, who's where rumors are going around that he would be the next to leave, and he would follow Osama Kido to the EWF. But he decided to stay, denounced Choshu by saying that money can't buy my loyalty. Fujinami then said that Baba was eager to meet him and lure him to all Japan through Otsuka. But Fujinami said, I know every side of Inoki, both good and bad. Choshu only saw his faults. I could see his good points. This is all interesting. As Fujinami was one of the main forces in the attempted coup d'etat last year. Fujinami, though, is still a high-ranking executive and looks to be a Noki successor in the future. So he knows what his future holds. And that also possibly played a role in Choshu's departure. 
as he knew that Fujinami was higher on the totem pole, than, and he couldn't knock him off. Oh, yeah, that's a big part of all this, too. It's Choshu knew that he couldn't replace Fujinami in standing in New Japan. Fujinami was Inoki's guy. He was the second in command, so to speak. And he's you been know. very publicly groomed as the successor for a better part of a decade. Just like Jumbo was the Baba. He yeah. was the, that that connection. So, yeah, I mean, Choshu... But here's the funny part, though. Choshu comes back, he's the booker, and has one of the most successful periods in wrestling history. Yep. But he never has all the power, though. He's just the, he's the booker, but he's never the big boss. He's but never... Still, he's, He's never even this like ceremonial president or anything. No, he kind of has that for a while there in the early two thousands, uh, in a way, with his cronies, Kasuchi Nakashima and those guys. Was was he tight with Director Ue? Director Ue, yeah, he was part of that group. But Fujinami staying aboard has definitely pleased New Japan fans because they were in genuine fear that if he left, the company would go bankrupt financially, inside the ring as well, basically killing the company. It had been a, that would have been like a death knell in many ways if they lost Fujinami. Yes. All right, so let's go to the big All Japan show of the week, the tour uh, starter on October 5th at Yokohama Book of Gym in front of 5,400 fans. We have Yoshihiro Momoda over Toshak Kawada in your opener, Ultra 7 and Miss Momoda over Tarzan Goto and Hiromichi Fuyuki, Asushi Onita Masafuchi over Great Kajika and Matoshi Okuma by disqualification. Magic Dragon over Rip Tyler. Then we have La Fiera going to no contest with Grand Hamada. Takashi Ishikawa over Eddie Sullivan. It's amazing that we had the late 70s Gulf Coast guys here in 1984. Eddie Sullivan was past his prime before the 80s started. This is a renaissance for Eddie Sullivan because he wears, he's in that Pro Wrestling USA Las Vegas taping in that match with Ken Lucas against the Road Warriors. Yeah. Weird. He was working Arizona Indies in that era, too. Jaya Baba, Mighty Inoue over Amanoseki Ueda and Gorosh Rumi. Tiger Mask Masawa over Jerry Estrada. Rick Martel over Shirohara. And then our main event, Great Kabuki, Tendukurichiro, and Jumbo Shiruta over the fabulous Freebirds, Terry Gordy, Buddy Roberts, and Michael Hayes. I think that's a mistake on Cage Match. I'm pretty sure this is Gordy and Hayes. I don't think Buddy's on the tour. Plus, also, I don't think it's a handicap. Well... Oh, wait, never mind. I misread it. Wait, was Buddy on that tour? Yes. I've only ever seen stuff with, with Hayes and Gordy. Yes. Okay. Did he make TV? No, I don't okay. think. Yeah, he did, he did this match. Okay. Well, we, don't have, we don't have the 84 TV. The, the, the TV complete really starts up in 85. We have 84 TV, but it's not complete. We have gaps. Okay. But yeah, but Buddy's on this tour. Absolutely. This is this is the one where Buddy there's the Buddy Roberts Lafayette match. Wow. <laughs> on this tour. Um how about this match on October sixteenth? Giant Bob and Ricky Steamboat over Buddy Roberts and Harley Race. Sure. How about Ricky Steamboat over Buddy Roberts at Cork and Hall? Sure. How about Grand Hamana Money Anyway over Buddy Roberts and Jerry Estrada? Excuse me? <laughs> Grand Havana and Mighty Inoue over Buddy Roberts and Jerry Estrada. Can you imagine? 
How about the Shinru and Jump? The that Buddy Roberts and Jerry Estrada <laughs> would get up to together in Japan in 1984. <laughs> Tenro, Jumbo, and Steamboat over the Freebirds. Um, Buddy Roberts over Masafuchi. Uh, People forget we... that Steamboat was booked like a native after... I mean, yeah. he was always booked as a babyface, but that he was kind of booked as a native, especially after the whole thing where he went on TV and said he was trying to reunite his mom with her family. Or, yeah, it was his mom with her family. Yeah. Um, let's see here. I'm, I'm trying to more Buddy Roberts stuff. Uh, Roberts, Gordy, and Harley uh, losing this Jumbo, Steamboat, and Kabuki. That's mm -hmm. a fucking match. Uh, Tenro over Buddy. In a singles match. Uh, let me get go these here. Alright. Uh, we got... Oh my god. <laughs> Buzz Sawyer was on this tour too. I'm looking to see if I have... Buzz joins the tour. I'm saying Buzz uh, is in with Buddy anywhere. Uh, Tiger Mask with Sour Buddy Roberts. Uh, Magic Dragon and Tiger Mask over Buddy Roberts and La Piera. Okay. Tiger Mask over Buddy. Um, Tim Room Bob over Buddy and Hayes. Uh, Tiger Mask Masawa. Tiger Mask, I mean, Masawa and Buddy wrestled numerous times. All right, Buddy, Buddy and Lafayette wasn't a singles match. It was a tag. Okay. And no, but, no Buzz Sawyer, Buddy Roberts interaction. Although we do have, and this definitely aired on television, the match of Kabuki and Tiger Mask Masawa over Buzz Sawyer and Lafayette. <laughs> Can you just imagine Buddy, Jerry Estrada, and Buzz Sawyer just like <laughs> well, Lafayette was... and Rapongi and going to like fuck shows together and stuff. Well, Buddy and La I mean Lafayette was a, a fun guy too. So, oh my god, <laughs> I, 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 this this may have broken my brain at least a little bit. Um, you you'll find stuff like this man when you when you do the Japanese wrestling research. I mean, you'll find in these eras you'll find some wild matches on these non-televised shows. But anyway, um many fans in the building firmly believed that Choshu's crew would debut on this show to attack Jumbo and his crew, but they didn't. Most likely because they didn't want to get sued by TVSI. Don't be surprised that the first attack will be on a non-TV taping or in an untelevised situation, which it was. That was in December. Yeah. I mean, and, and the way this was played up in the media, you can't blame the fans, can you? No, it feels almost like a twist on the CM Punk stuff. It does, doesn't it? All right. Um, and J.J. Dillon was scheduled to be on this current tour, but he stayed behind in America. Well, guess who just start, started with Jim Crocker Promotions? J.J. Dillon. So basically, what happened was he was going to go to all Japan when he was done with his Maritimes thing for the summer. Mm-hmm. But, because I don't think the alternate Maritimes version he was in was supposed to be year-round either, right? I think it was supposed to be summer, no. like the regular one. Yes. Yeah. yes, yes, yes. The second promotion. So, once the season's over, he was going to do an all-Japan tour. But in the meantime, because of how badly everything was going there, he went to Dusty for a lifeline, and it was that was Dusty bringing him in as assistant booker in the Carolinas. Which had just started, yeah. like weeks earlier, so That's he couldn't what I'm leave. Saying. Yeah. 
And Buzz, so- the reason why Buzz Sawyer was on this tour is Butchery was supposed to be on a tour and he replaced him. Why was that? So there's that. Wait, why did he replace him? Because Butchery got hurt. More on uh, that later. Okay. All right. Uh, New Japan Pro Wrestling. TVSI will continue to support New Japan after the Choshu Jump. After their September 28th television show, which had the main event from September 18th, where Choshu's crew beat an Anoki trio, the end of the match was cut off. An interview with Anoki was put in its place, where Anoki talked about how he was used to being in a crisis and he would overcome this situation. I'll be watching this soon. I just started January. So I'll be watching this soon. I can't wait to watch this one to see how this was edited. <laughs> to see if they just edited it right before the finish. <laughs> Anoki was alluding to his past, where he tried to break away from JWA in 1966 with Toyonobori forming Tokyo Pro Wrestling Company, which failed. And again, 1971, where he tried his own coup d'etat on JWA, and he got expelled. Yes, folks, Anoki did this shit too. Twice. And Tokyo Pro Wrestling also was a little bit of a different situation, though, because that had... All sorts of weird, like, establishment wrestling backing with Frank Tunney involved and Luthez and all sorts of stuff. Like, that... And, oh, who was it? Who was the promoter on the Japanese side? I don't remember. Forget. It was someone familiar. But anyway, but... It failed. That's yes. all you need to know. And yeah, that's why he got kicked out of JWA. That's why Deuce Bounce formed was because he tried his own coup de top there. Oops. There are rumors that Anoki had met up with UWF President Nobuo Yurada, and that Fujinami went to the UWF gym to meet with Yoshiaki Fujiwara. A UWF spokesman denied that and said New, J- New Japan and UWF would, would not be working together, saying UWF was formed because the guys wanted to leave New Japan. Well, no shit. Although, originally, they did kind of try to play it like they were going to be working together, though. It was hinted at. Well, <laughs> were, weren't there, like, posters with Anoki on them and stuff? Uh, I don't know about all that, but it was hinted at. Okay. New Japan has ordered all their wrestlers that were in Calgary to come back to Japan, such as Jinji Arata, Hiro Saito, Shinji Takano, and Mr. Hito, who doesn't come back. Mr. Man will also... not on excursion. What is he talking about? Hito, Hito's been living there for the past six or seven years. I know that, Bix. Mr. Man will also send Tiger Chung Lee back and has promised Hulk Hogan, Andre the Giant, and the North-South Connection to Dawson Murdoch for the upcoming tag series. Good to have that relationship at this time. Although that changes in a year. Mm-hmm. New Japan opened up their tour in Kushigaya, Japan, on October 5th. Keiji Muto over Masahiro Chono in your opening match, Young Lions. Uh, Kim Su-Hong over Shinya Hashimoto. Makoto Arakawa and Nekusano over Tetsu Shigoto and Keiichi Yamada. Shunji Kasugi over Shinji Sasazaki. Black Tiger over Black Cat. Banny Zion over Seiji Saguchi by disqualification. Shunji Takano over Bret Hart by Countout. The Strong Machines, 1 and 2, over The Cobra and Katara Hoshino. And Antonio Noki, Tatsumi Fujinami, and Kim Kamara over B. Brian Blair, Bob Orton Jr., and the Mass Superstar in your main event. Okay, so let's look at various ways they're being affected here. We've got Young Lions through the first four matches. Well, that's what I was going to say. Thank God they had that 84 class. Uh, Yes. The greatest class in history. Yes. Well, uh, Arakawa is not a young lion, but everyone else is. No, but, well, yeah, Black Cat's not either. But still, no, they're part of their four matches. I said first four matches. Well, whatever. And also, junior heavyweights in heavyweight scenarios, too. Bret Hart, Cobra, Oshino, 
All are being used as junior heavyweights at this time. Yeah, yeah, but New Japan also did that forever. They also had those guys mixed in. They'd mix them into Hoshino. six mans and stuff, though. Yeah, but still, Hoshino was always involved with heavyweights. You know? I know, but still. And Brett too? They're not all Japan who are just strictly the new, the new junior sure, heavyweight guys are basically sure, all. Sure, sure. Now, that said, though, too, you can see from the makeup of this card that as long as they could keep things going for a few years, they were eventually going to be fine. They just had to get these guys experience. Mm-hmm. They, had, they had young talent, just had to give them experience. Well, Scott McGee and Pete Roberts supposed to work this tour, but the rumor is that Carl Gosh blocked their appearance, and they'll be working for UWF in the future. Well, wasn't Pete Roberts an all-Japan guy anyway, or not yet? No, no, not yet. No, he goes there after. Okay. He never goes back to New Japan. He goes all Japan. Because once UWF dies, that's where he goes, because he's tight with Hanson. So he befriended Hanson while on tour New with Japan. the UWF. No, he oh, befriended Hanson in New Japan. Japan. Okay. Yes. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. And King Curtis Ikea's son is currently training at the New Japan Dojo. Yes, the one and only Abaduba Davian. Rocky Ikea. Yes. Yes. Which I don't think I realized he was a New Japan Dojo guy. Yes, sir. Him and Pat Tanaka and all those guys, they were all come through at the same in the same era. So, so. wait, who else is the... Are there, are there any other foreigners in this era that are in the dojo? It's Tanaka, Tanaka, Ikea. I feel like I'm forgetting something uh, obvious. Yeah. You know, I mean, Benoit, Daryl Peterson, Brian Adams are a few years later. That's after. That's after. Yeah. So. I feel like I'm forgetting someone obvious, but I, I feel like I, there's someone else we're forgetting. All right, UWF. Russia Kamara Room ago both quit UWF on October the fourth. As the direction of the promotion is becoming more of a realistic feel, and they didn't fit in. There are rumors that Bookman would be also be joined up with Oscar and Baba, and then Go showed up the next day, sitting in the crowd, and they on Spansha. That's where they go. Yes, Go only lasts a couple years, maybe less. Uh, Russia made the best possible decision he could have. Absolutely. Alright, uh, UWF at Corken Hall, 3,000 fans on October 5th. 3,000. Well, let me, let me talk about this. You know, we talk about this a lot in these crowd deals. The more and more I watch the television from the, the, the early 80s of Corken Hall, the way Corken Hall is configured on the floor, it's way different than it would be later on. There's not a whole lot of room for these guys to walk from, the locker room to the ring, the way the crowd, they, it, you know, you watch Cork and Hall shows in, in the nineties and in the two thousands and whatever. Then there's like a, a wide, wider passageway. It's more of an all Japan women style, completely packed. Yeah. yeah, you, uh, yeah New, New Japan at Cork and Hall and all Japan, well, New Japan mainly, they have, you have to walk like this little maze type setup where you have to maze yourself around the fans. So there is more fans in the building. Absolutely. I don't know right. if it's 3,000, but there's more than 2,150. Let's put right. that way. And also, anyway. All Japan Women has smaller fans well, <laughs> because they yeah, have so many yeah. tween and teen girls. So in the yeah. bleachers, you can fit more of them in. Yeah. All right. So anyway, uh, Satoru Hiromatsu went to a tournament draw with Tatsuo Nakano. I love this match. Phil LaFleur, Phil LaFon, over Frank Morrell. Daddy Frank. Working for the UWF in Japan. As things are transitioning, yes. 
Sweet Daddy Seeky over Steven Pettipaw in your Maritimes offer match. And then we have Jerry... this, which might be the crown jewel of the show. Jerry Oski over Makayata. Jerry Allen yeah, Ka- versus a Japanese luchador. Kazo Yamazaki over the Cuban assassin. That's on Hell's Beta. Yeah. Nobuhiko Takata over T Samoa. I think that's Coco Samoa. Well, no, he worked as Jack Snuka. Okay. In so UWF. Samoa. Oh, God. Um, I remember who that motherfucker was. Um, hold on. Let me look and see here real quick as I search it out. Because my memory's fading. All right. T Samoa. Uh, Tapu. Of Tapu and T.O., New Guinea Headhunters fame. Yeah. Chief Tapu. All right, so there's that. And then Osama Kino and Yoshika Fujiwara over Super Tiger and Akira Maeda. Fucking awesome match. 25-35 on that. Tremendous stuff. And one of the reasons why, Super Tiger was pinned by Fujiwara in his first pinfall loss as he became Tiger Mask. And that shocked the crowd because Tiger defeated Maeda and thus was regarded as a top star in the promotion. UWF does a policy where no one man would be the top guy, quote-unquote. Yeah, it, you watch that match, and when Maheda gets pinned, I mean, when Tiger gets pinned, everybody goes, ooh, <laughs> we're not expecting this. Yeah, that's definitely a, a moment. Because, yeah, he never jobbed. He never did a job. Nope. It's Tiger Mask. Never, ever. And now he's He lost his title Tiger. because of injuries. Right. And now he's a shooter, and he's still doing a clean job. That's when he... When you would lose titles. But get this, Bix. This tour could have been even better. Carrie Brown and Tug Taylor were supposed to for the UWF, but New Japan blocked them. Okay. Carrie Brown, I get. He had worked for New Japan. Calgary is his main gig, etc. How does Tug Taylor get blocked by New Japan? They probably promised him a tour, and they never gave it to him. I mean, I could definitely see that happening. Well, we'll bring you in, uh, in, in, in you know, November, and then reneging on it because UWF ain't gonna take him back now. He screwed them over. I wonder how That's much money that... they were promising these guys too, because as we've seen with that one contract that's available, even for the no-name foreigners, they were paying a lot. Oh yeah, they were floating the cash. Absolutely. So who knows. All right, uh, All Japan Women, we just talked about them. They ran a show in Tokyo. No venue listed on September 29th. We have Dup Masumoto going to Double Canada with Yukari Amori. Double Masami over Lakalatika. And then Jumbo Hori and Naruto Tateno and Jaguar Yokota over Linus Asuka, Shigusa Nagayo, and Itsuki Yamazaki. Two out of three falls. I'm sure that was pretty good. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I'm sure that was pretty good. All, the, all those ladies at this point in time, young. Is going going crazy, yeah. Well, everything sure on this show, can you imagine what a brawl and probably a bloodbath Masami versus Galactica is, too? Oh, yeah. And Absolutely. Yukari Omori, of course, one of the lost great workers of all time. Mm-hmm. Because she doesn't really come back, or if she does, it's in, like, early JWP, and that's it. Yeah. All right, uh, we're, we're keeping it international. Uh, let's go to Germany, out of Vance, and CWA in Hanover. At the Zutball Schutzenplatz on September 29th, we have Billy Samson over Carl Dahlberger. Mila Zerno over Irish Mask. I wonder if that's Rover. <laughs> oh, actually, <laughs> Axel Dieter 
the father of uh, Marcel Barthel. No, over, that was uh, to, Oh, that's right. Sorry. Uh, went to a draw with the UFO. Bob Delacera. Yes. George Chinook went to a draw with Inyo Guajardo. And Giant Haystack's Ned Wiskowski over Michael Schneider and Steve Wright. Okay. And yes, Marcel Barthel is Axel Dieter's son, Bix, for God's sake. Not Alexander Wolf. No, you know why I keep getting that confused? Because 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 this has happened before. It's because Axel Alexander Wolf is Axel Tischer, and I, yes. I used to get I used to think that Axel Dieter's real name was Axel Tischer, and Marcel Barthel was Axel Dieter Jr. And I used to get it confused because for some reason I thought Tischer was the real name. Hey, Kevin Nash was the Axel in WCW. Yes, I know. For more on that, patreon.com slash between the sheets. <laughs> All right, uh, let's go to joint promotions at Royal Albert Hall in London, England on September 29th. This has to be one of the yeah. best joint promotions Royal Albert Hall shows, right? Uh, there, were, there was Royal Albert Hall shows in, in the later 80s. They were? Uh, okay. Vic, yeah. Vic Faulkner went to no contest with Steve Gray. Sheikh Al Sadi went to a, a beat Drew McDonald by disqualification. The future Ben Doon McDonald. I mean Ben Doon. British, yes, British heavyweight title. Marty Jones retained over Chick Cullen, Robbie who Stewart was Calgary. Robbie Stewart. Yes, world midheavyweight title. Fit Finley retained over Alan Kilby. Big Daddy and Danny Collins over Lucky Gordon and Tiny Callahan. Auto Voss is here, not even on his own show. Defending his CWA heavyweight title, retaining over Ray Steele. Greg Valentine, not that Greg Valentine, over Blackjack Mulligan, not that Blackjack Mulligan. Sid Cooper over Ian McGregor. And then Greg Valentine over Sid Cooper. Clearly there's some tournament at the end of the show that wasn't properly accounted for. Raw Albert, I mean, that's one thing I've learned from doing the results of these shows, is that these shows were structured in ways where the, I mean, it's like WWF shows at the time, where the, the main event would be in the middle of the show. Yes. Also, it's very noticeable how much more they felt they had to load up Royal Albert Hall compared to the usual, you know, town hall shows. Yes. Because the way that joint promotions was built was that you'd have like one or two people who they knew from TV on most shows. Whereas here, just about everyone is a TV star. Yeah. All right, um, Montreal, oh, Canada, on October the 1st at the Paul Salve Center. We have Renaud Dubay going to a draw with Dale Moore, Mike Moore. Man he's Mount not Dale Moore, No, <laughs> he's No, he's not. Le Tigre de Durin over Serge Jodin. Denise Goulet and Tony Rico over Bob Boucher, not the water boy, and John White. The Mass Marvel. Insano, though. <laughs> the Mass Marvel over Rocky Del Sera. Gino Brito over Diamond Jim. The Rougeaus, Ramon and Armand over Le Boreau, that's the hangman, and Richard Chalam. So, uh, as Frenchy Martin. It's Neil, Neil Gay? Yes. Okay. Uh, Frenchy Martin and Pierre Lefebvre. Over Rick Valentine and Sailor White. So Rick Valentine then, being Carrie Brown, who was supposed to be on yes. the UWF tour. That's right. And our main event, Joe LaDuke over King Tonga by disqualification. Sounds like a fun show. 
does Haku deserve more consideration as a Hall of Famer based on his Montreal run? Or is it not long enough? It won't, he won't get in. He won't get in. I, I'm I not mean, saying that. But. I mean, we're, we're at the point now where, I mean, it's going to be it's going to be hard for a lot of the wrestlers from that generation to get in the Hall of Fame. It's going to be much easier for the wrestlers of today to get in than it is for the wrestlers of the 80s and 90s. There's going to be some people getting death bumps and stuff, though, I would think. Yeah, well, possible. Um, which also, we should be getting the ballot soon, shouldn't we? I would think so. When was it last <laughs> year? Um, It was September, October-ish, yeah. Man, come out yet. So, I would guess so. You we'll better see. put Liz Thatcher on like I asked him to. But, anyway. <laughs> All right, uh, EMLL, October 5th, as I go to Mexico, Arena Mexico. Caramaco and Leon Chino over El Az and Modulo. Emilio Chardes Jr., Reno Castro over Animal in Russo Flores. Impacto, El Marnaca, Javier Cruz, and Solar, number two, over El Dandy, Franco Colombo, and Panico. So Dandy teaming with the uh, future creative of EMLL, CMLL. Uh-huh. Infermero Jr., El Supremo, and Mochocota over Cachorro Mendoza, Chamaco Valdeguez, and Quasar. Talisman over Medico Roca in a Super Libre match. I'm sure, that was good. And Atlantis, Gran Cochise, and Radio Disco Jr. over Los Infernales, MSC Uno, Peralta Morgan, and Satanico. Oh, that sounds fine. Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> now, did Quasar have a brother named Panasonic? <laughs> oh, I, I, I could definitely see RCA being a gimmick in Mexico. So, who knows? UWA, El Torreo Cuatro de Caminos, on September 30th, Macapon. Shabelo Romero and Estela Molina went against Sharita Silva and Shela Salazar. Solar, number one, in Ultraman, against Abdullah Tamba and Cesar Valentino. Ilda Santo, Kendo, and Mano Negra against Black Terry, Jose Lu- Luis Feliciano, and Lobo Rubio. Oh, man. <laughs> and then we have uh, Anibal, Anibal, Dos Caras, and Enrique Vera up against Babyface, Luis Mariscal, and Scorpio. And in our main event... <clears throat> for the UWA heavyweight title, and this is on tape, Kanak retained over Stan and Hansen. Well, it's on tape because it was released in Japan as part of the Superstar Stan Hansen home video. Yep, that's how it, we got it. I don't have the DVD anymore, but we ha- do have the promos he cut on YouTube that I uploaded. I, I, have, oh, I have the DVD. So Chosen my Ricky, sta- you long-haired weirdo. <laughs> I gotta play at least uh, a little of this. I'm sorry. I have to. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Jack Bob, I'm in Mexico City, boy. I'm training every day. I'm thinking about you. Every day I get up at home and I see a picture of you sitting on my wall, Jack beside him I see a picture of Terry Funk. Every day I get up I start my day thinking about y'all. You guys make me sick. Hell is fixing to come to Japan, John Baba. You're trying to hurt the lariat. Not the imitations that Hulk Hogan does. Not the imitations that uh, Joshu Ricky does. I'm talking about the real lariat. When I come to 
Japan, brother, you can rest assured that the Lariat is well. 6,000 feet here in Mexico City. I'm training out here. All these Mexican people see me out here training because they know I'm getting ready to come to Japan, brother. Giant Bobby, you tried to hurt it. Terry Funk, you did hurt it. But it's well now. And I'm ready. I'm training. The people of Japan get ready because no more nice guy. Stan Hansen's coming for one reason, and that's to beat you, Baba. Don't you give that PWF belt to anybody else. It's mine. Terry Funk, get ready. Because revenge, brother, is what I'm after. And revenge is what I'm going to get. I'm going to take you down, boy, and I'm going to bite your nose off and chew it up if I've got to. I forgot I accidentally made it the mini player and then forgot. Yeah, how there's like there's there's some four minutes left. Well, there's so, a yeah. multiple promo. I, I guess and I guess Choshu the Choshu Ricky part is indoors, or the Choshu maybe long haired weirdo. Yeah, he runs uh, at the camera and gives it a Larry in the park and all that. Anyway, but it's Brody. We're coming after y'all too. On. Okay, pause. All right. Um, he's fantastic here though. It's on YouTube. Just look up Stan Hansen Mexico City <laughs> on YouTube. Um. Also, he's talking about training there. He's in the best shape of his life here. Wow. He's in great shape. Yeah. All right. And let's close this up. We're going to Double Double C. San Juan Puerto Rico on September 29th. Angel Maravilla over Tony Echevarria. 666. Yes. 666 from Central States over Miguel Perez Jr., who's got to be very, very young. Black Gorman over Vita Javica. Joe Saboldi over Barabas. El Gran Apollo over Supermedico number two, which would be Johnny Rods. Uh, Supermedico number three, uh, which can't be right. It can't be Jose Jr. already. Uh, defeated Invader number three in a scaffold match. It could be. Hell, I don't know. Uh, Pedro Morales over Randy Savage by countout. Yes, that happened. And then your main event. What a six-man match this is. On one side, we have Carlos Colon, Invader number one, and Abdul the Butcher beating Bruiser Brody, Stan Hansen, and King Konga, yes, the Barbarian, by disqualification. And you may be wondering why Abdul and Cologne are teaming up here. Brody and Hansen were terrorizing the island. Cologne called up the man who was the only guy who could help him in this war that, that he knew would do it, and, be Abdu- and it was Abdullah. One of those type of angles where the babyface calls up their longtime heel rival and asks to be his partner. And also you have Hanson working Puerto Rico one night and in Mexico City the next night. Yes, exactly. So there you go, folks. That's the first half of the show. Yes. And I, I was also impressed that we had a full uh, full results for a double-double C show of this era. It was one of the big shows. I think it was it was uh, the stadium. So, uh, yeah, it's one of those times. Yeah, we had the full results. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah, so that's it for the first half of the show. Oh, I'm uh, we... for a second. Um, okay. Just this. So, was he in full time or was he just doing shots? He was in Memphis. That's what I'm saying. So he's just doing shots, right? But does he get like a big match, like with Cologne or anyone, or is this this like the peak and the end of it? Hello. They were bringing in people at this at a time over the weekend. Oh, you were muted. Okay. <laughs> Savage, Tully, Tully came in during this era and had had a little run with Carlos. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. So it was just one of those deals. Because I know, you know, it's on one of the home videos. They shoot that angle where he ends Huracan Castillo Senior's career or whatever it is. 
but I've never really yeah. had a good context for the whole run here. Yeah, so. Alright, well again, that's it for the first half of the show, so it's halftime. The reason why we're, we're doing it so early is because all we have left is America, and that's where our guest is going to join us. So we'll be we'll be back after the break at some great 1984 commercials, which I love when we had this era, so we have some great commercials. So it's a great 1984 commercials. We'll pivot to the halftime segment where we're going to talk about Patreon. We'll hit the plugs, uh, do all that stuff, talk about IWTV, etc. And then we'll come back where we will be joined by our guest, John McAdam, to discuss the birth of Pro Wrestling USA. Yes, the first Pro Wrestling USA television show. What's going on with Croc Promotions? Why are they doing support at the gate? Uh, legal wrestling news in Georgia, and all kinds of other wild and wacky stuff. All that more after the break. At first glance, all airlines may appear to be the same. But when you look closer, one offers you a special way to fly. It's an airline so large it carries over 30 million people a year. Yet so personalized, you can reserve your seat a year in advance. We have the seat you want, Mr. Martin. It's an airline so innovative, you can get all your boarding passes ahead of time. So when you get to the airport, you'll never wait in line. Save Feel the lather, the sand is brisk. No one does it quite like this. Coach works as hard as you. Coach works as hard as you. Picks you up and pulls you through. It pulls you through. Coach works as hard as you. Warm moments, she's such a delight. Rub-a-dub, baby, the water's just right. Snuggle down cozy, baby, sleep tight. Let our gentle flame keep you warm tonight. Warm moments for those warm moments. Nothing warms you like gas. Warm is what natural gas is all about. Clean, efficient, and in most areas, the lowest-priced fuel. Shouldn't it be in your home? Nothing warms you like gas. This is the pain-relieving medicine for which doctors have written a hundred million prescriptions. And now you can get it in a new non-prescription strength. Bristol-Myers introduces Nuprin. One tablet has the strength to relieve most minor aches and pains. Nuprin contains ibuprofen. It's a medicine totally different than aspirin or the ingredient in Tylenol. If you've had a serious problem taking aspirin, before taking Nuprin, ask your doctor. The medicine in new Nuprin, it's over a hundred million prescriptions strong. Come fly with me, come fly, come fly away. Right now, get up to $200 in free travel on United Airlines when you buy a selected AT&T phone. This way, you can give someone a product that sets the standards while you can fly to any of the 50 states, even at United's lowest published fares. Up to $200 free travel on United. Visit your AT&T retailer now. And come fly with me. ideal place to manufacture microprocessors, those chips for today's electronics, would be outer space, someplace far removed from random dirt and dust. 
This is as close as man has ever come to such a place. Not outer space, but the clean room at ITT's Advanced Technology Center in Connecticut. This room is hyper-clean, 1,000 times cleaner than a hospital operating room. ITT engineers are hard at work at advanced technology centers like this here and in Europe. They're making things that are already changing the way people live on Earth. And someday, who knows where else? Every time I go to work, somebody's life could be at stake. You call an ambulance, I gotta get there. Nothing can slow me up. Not traffic, not weather, not... Not a headache, either. I get Anison. Regular strength pain relievers stop at 650 milligrams, but Anison gives you more medicine, 800 milligrams. More medicine? Good. No more headache. Huh. That's one thing off my mind. Anison. More medicine. About an hour then? When he's late bringing home the bacon. Another hour. His favorite dish. Another hour. Becomes your least favorite to clean. Yuck. But only Sunlight Dishwashing Liquid has the juice of one whole lemon to do one tough job. Lemon Sunlight cuts baked on, caked on, stuck on food. Even grease. Back so? About an hour. Lemon Sunlight with one whole lemon to do one tough job. team fights fire with fire to cool off a hot mobster. <laughs> then on Riptide season premiere, when three little darlings come looking for fun, Cody! the guys may die laughing. And on Remington Steel, Laura's kidnapped. Cody! And Steel gets that rundown feeling when he tries to save her. Tuesday. All right, we're back. Hope you enjoyed those great 1984 commercials as we fit to the halftime segment of the show. And this will be kind of a truncated halftime for uh, various reasons. But anyway, patreon.com slash twin sheets. We, we have the new show out. So everybody go listen to that. We talked about the beginning of the show. So uh, don't forget that preview clip should be coming up at the end of this show. If not so, already in the feed as well. Yes. Yeah. So there you go. So do that. And you all know the rest uh, of all the donations and all that stuff. All right. Um, of course, all the normal thing, IWTV and Viper VPN and blah, 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 blah. And uh, we got to thank our patrons, though. And we've had some type of issue here. Somehow, some way, we've missed some names. So we're going to, uh, as we've had it brought to our attention, and we're going to name off uh, the list of names from the past couple of weeks or so to catch up. I mean, it's basically going to be, we're just going to read through everyone. And well, if it's, I mean, yeah, well, what I'm saying is if it's repeated names. We thank you already. We're going to thank you again because we want to make sure we get everybody thanked that uh we missed so vix read them off all right so i guess we'll go in chronological order on these we would like to thank dark alley as in the place not the tna gimmick thanks dark alley scott garen thanks scott terry wall thanks terry sean watt thanks sean secondhand internet message board legend james hoback Thanks, Toback. Uh, Jason Andrew. Thanks, Jason. This is one I think we did read, Jake Denham. Yeah, well, still, doesn't matter. Thanks, Jake. 
Well, I know, because most of them don't seem familiar, is what I'm saying. Uh, or a bunch of them don't. Jared Hunt, who did $25, and actually I need to talk to you about his request. I think you already have, but thank you, Jared. That's right, we did, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> we're not on our usual schedule this week, so we're a little disoriented. Uh, Brandon Collard. Thanks, Brandon. Zach Truitt. Thanks, Zach. Returning champion, John Geyer. Thanks, John. Brent Clark. Thanks, Brent. Ash Preston. Thanks, Ash. Adam Klug. Thanks, Adam. Chris Samsa. Thanks, Chris. Austin Musselwhite. Thanks, Austin. Justin Delacave. Thanks, Justin. Sean Aylward. Thanks, Sean. Ernie Sawyer. Thanks, Ernie. Sam Jr. Thanks, Sam. And Garrick. Garrick? Thanks, Garrick. All right. So we take all you new patrons, your old patrons, patrons that are coming on the way. Everybody that's uh, support us at patreon.com slash between the sheets. All right. Uh, next week's show. We'll go back to 1999. Patreon requested show. Uh, what's the patron again, Bix? I forget who it is every time. Kyle Rieger. Thanks, Kyle. And uh, we're talking about 1999 and, yes, Heroes of Wrestling. That's the big thing for next week's show. Well, the, ma the major plug at the end. So listen for that. But yes, that should be quite the show. What interesting, interesting time period in wrestling history. We'll go to Vince Russo and FRRs and WCW. Not started you know, writing yet, but they're there. And just all kinds of crazy shit. So uh, yeah, definitely uh, listen next week. All right. You can follow me on Twitter at KRSZI. I'm trying to get through. So I'm trying to get through quick. K R I S Z E L N E R. Between the Sheets at BT Sheets Pod. Uh, Bix at David Bix. And yeah, that's it for us for halftime. Let's get back to the rest of the show. All right, we're back. And it's time to start the second half of the show when we are joined by our guest this week. And it's been way too long since we had him on the show. And we're uh, glad to have him back. And uh, I thought this would be a really fun show to have him on as. Uh, he was definitely uh, watching a lot of wrestling at this time, and uh, he's older than us. Sorry to say, John, but uh, you, you, your experience level at this point in time is better than ours because we're—I'm—I'm I'm just a squirt, and Bix is a baby. So uh, we are joined by our dear friend John McAdam. John, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. You know, uh, we're going to talk about fall of 1984, where I was 19 years old. I had been a wrestling fan for about eight or nine years by that point. And, yeah, I, I absorbed as uh, as much of it as I possibly could. I bought all of the magazines. I mean, you name it. I, I was really into wrestling at this point. Absolutely. And there's a lot going on in 1984, as we'll get into here, as we – Go back to the United States, and we go to the independent well, territories at this point in time, and there's a new territory, well, kind of, sort-ish, that started up called Pro Wrestling USA. And uh, they had their television debut on September 29th, and John wanted us to play the theme song of this because he has a story to tell. So let's play the theme song of the Pro Wrestling USA TV show before we uh, get talking about it. Pro 
Wrestling USA presents International Championship Wrestling. Featuring the top stars of the AWA and the NWA. Pro Wrestling USA. It's interesting that they go right into the first match, too. No uh, no intro proper by Jack Reynolds. But, John, what is the story you got on the uh, intro Pro Wrestling USA? Well, I knew the show was coming. Um, it had been advertised on WPIX New York, which was on my cable system. And so I was looking forward to it. I mean, wow, all of the stars of the NWA and AWA, this is going to be great. And I remember the morning that it first came on for the first time ever and i listened to that music and i looked at the graphic and i was like immediately i'm like this is gonna suck this is absolutely (laughs) gonna suck (laughs) what 62 year old lawrence welk loving producer put that thing together and used that music in 1984 i mean it was so insanely out of style and once again i just knew that pro wrestling usa was going to be a bomb and it was i mean at first they had some really good matches i mean as soon as the show started they had the rock and roll express against the um nightmares who are those guys the nightmares the nightmares thank you and immediately like as soon as they cut away from that graphic we see ricky morton suplexing one of them off the top uh, superplexing them off the top rope so the action was good um they used a lot they had a lot of competitive matches like as as I read in your notes, you know, you had Eddie Gilbert uh, losing a match. And we, we knew Eddie Gilbert was a pretty big star. Same thing with Lenny Poffo. Same thing with the uh, with the nightmares. But ultimately, that hurt the Memphis territory because now these guys look like they're they're minor leaguers. So it, it kind of bombed in every every way imaginable. But yeah, that was that was like kind of my takeaway from or my main memory from from Pro Wrestling USA, and that was that. As soon as as soon as the show got rolling, I decided within ten seconds, oh no, this is not going to work, and it didn't work. And to yeah. paint the picture, since uh, the listeners can't see what it looked like, it was the Memphis opening, but with that song dubbed over, and then a graphic at the end. Yeah, and um, I mean, you look at the time. WF is playing a Thriller, you know, on Championship Wrestling, and uh, you know exactly. I mean, and, and uh, they're using um, oh, what's that David Bowie song for All Star? Oh God! Oh, uh, modern Love. Method of Modern Love. Modern Love, not Method Metal. That's all the Modern Love. Yeah. So WF is hip and and with it and everything. And then of course the other wrestling organizations had had their good intros. But yeah, let's go back to the <laughs> to the sixties here, nineteen eighty four for this intro. But. Uh, this is what Dave had to write about this. Eddie Einhorn's cabal of NWA and AWA promoters made the nearest city TV debut on September 29th. Dave felt the first show contained very good action, as the quality of the losers were excellent. Eddie Gilbert, Dutch Mantel, the Nightmares, and 30 Wine Boys. Yeah, they all do TV jobs. But they may be trying to put over too many wrestlers at once. The first show had eight matches. <laughs> this is a one-hour show. Eight matches, four of which were tag teams. Plus, they had Bob Backlund, Terry Funk, Sheikha Nano Casey, and Jimmy Hart all do promos on the show. And the next show would feature even more new names. Dave hopes they get themselves a battle plan on exactly what their live card's going to be and start pushing those wrestlers to start building up angles. For a debut show and getting guys exposed, though, it was very good for the effort. 
The highlight was Dan Buckwinkle's win over Lanny Poffo. Also, Britt Marteau beat Eddie Gilbert. Jerry Lawler and Tommy Rich over the Dirty White Boys. Rock and Rolls over the Nightmares, where the last 30 seconds were phenomenal. Butch Reed and Tony Atlas had a squash. Road Warriors had a squash. Road, Mr. Saito had a squash. And Dusty Rhodes had a tape squash as well. Tape squash, I presume, so, means brought in okay, from another territory. Yeah. Yeah, from Crockett. But so, yeah, John, eight matches in one hour. You know, WWF had been doing shows like that, you know, as well in this era where they had like six, seven, eight matches at one time. But I mean, like you said, these are all a lot of maybe mostly all name guys. And uh, yeah, the Memphis uh, crew, because this, this was taped at Minnesota Coliseum, Lance Russell's ring announcer. And the, the most different looking Minnesota Coliseum you'll ever see in the way it's lit. Um, yeah, I mean, the Memphis guys definitely got the short end of the stick, didn't they? They did. Now, I understand it. It's like, look, you know, if, uh, if Rick Martell and whoever is coming to town, they, you know, they're, they're going to beat your mid-card guys. But my understanding was that it did hurt the Memphis promotion at the gate. Not only that, the fans will sometimes get that mindset. Like, why am I coming to a regular weekly show here in Memphis? I can just wait until the, the Nick Bockwinkle and Terry Funk show up. Yeah, I mean, that's the risk of doing that. It, it, you know, at this point in time in a place like Memphis where they had their set crew and they would bring in big names and some of these guys had come through Memphis before, but I mean, yeah, it kind of, it's, it's different in Memphis than it would be in other places. Um, Bix, what were your thoughts of uh, when you watched this for the first time? I mean, the big thing, of course, is just how much of the shaft uh, the Memphis guys got, for sure. Because, yeah. yeah, I mean, some of the, ma- the matches are competitive to a degree, but they're not hyped up or anything, the guys. You know, they're basically presented as job guys. Also, I thought it was interesting that Dave does not know the term jobber or job guys yet. I think he knows it. He just didn't want to say it. Lest he get beat up by someone or something? Well, not just <laughs> that, but I'm just saying, uh, well, I'm just saying he, he, he probably didn't want to try to... to downgrade those guys because they're top guys in that territory true yes and they're great workers and one of them at least at this time is probably his friend oh <laughs> definitely yeah, yeah, Gilbert. yeah. yeah and, John <laughs> i mean i i don't know if some calling someone a loser is better than calling them a jobber well yeah. job guy i think is fine at least that's it's what Joe has taught us on the shows that jo- well, the, the job guy bad. is okay job jobber not so much yeah. Um, but, but yeah, that was always the main thing that stuck with me. Just to watch, I find the ones that are taped in Crockett Towns more interesting. Well, and, and, and the thing is that the Crockett, the job, the Crockett job guys are doing the jobs, not well, Crockett names. So, the, okay, that's so that's the thing I was going to ask, though. What is the reason that it's the name Memphis guys doing jobs and not Keith Eric or whoever? I, I guess uh, you got to ask Jerry Jarrett about that. Well, did, Conrad, did, didn't Jerry Jarrett technically book the taping? Yeah. Yeah. Hell, they made an angle out of it. That's the whole Rick Rude, King Kong Bundy uh, brawl with Lawler and Savage in the studio before our week. Started for a week. Rude and Bundy were pissed off because they weren't booked on this taping. Hell, it might have been a good thing. They probably would have <laughs> dropped it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think the reason them. they use those guys is they, I mean, it's your first. It's your first uh, taping. You want good matches, and yeah, the guys who did jobs were all really good workers. Yeah. In fact, uh, young Tracy Smothers uh, did some jobs on this taping as well. I think won the Saida. 
So, uh, yeah. But to me, the first time I watched this show, which was after the fact, years after the fact, because we didn't have Pro Wrestling USA, at least I don't remember having it in Atlanta at the time, was what we're about to play right now. Bob Acklin uh, had just Well, left I wanted to mention Federation. something real quick before we get too sidetracked. Um, this showed you 3,000 fans after a yeah. regular Memphis show the previous day that drew close to 7,000. The previous, well, yeah. month, the previous month or so, nothing, so nothing had drawn less than just under 7,000 or, excuse me, than about 6,500. The next show after this draws, uh, hold on, let me make sure I'm looking at it right. Right, there's no show the following week because of the fair. When they come back on October 1st, eh, a little over 4,600 people. So, well, also, well, get, what, what else is going on? School's back in session. True. So, that's a problem, you know, in, in, on Monday nights wrestling right. in the fall. And Scott Bowden used to talk about that, you know, the sc- and during school time, the crowds be down. But anyway, so anyway, this is what I remember the most. Bob Backlund uh, giving his first big promo back in the Northeast. So let's go hey, to let Bob. Let me throw something in really sure, quick. Sure, go ahead. Before, before we hear the audio of Bob Backlund, I want, I want to give you the, uh, a visual image of Bob Backlund, <laughs> who is wearing a suit that I would not be caught dead in in 1984. He's wearing this, like, giant disco 1977 collar, and the, the shirt's unbuttoned, and the suit just sucks, and oh, my God. I mean, I, I remember seeing this and just being like, you know, Bob is going back in time. Every week he goes further and further back in time. Yes. So let's play the clip and we'll talk more about Bob's fashion afterwards. Do you think Carl Gotch bought him the suit? (laughs) This is Jack Reynolds and welcome right back to Pro Wrestling USA. With me right now is a very familiar face. A gentleman who needs no introduction to the world of professional wrestling. He is the champ. The one and only Bob Backlund. Bob, welcome to our program. Well, it's great to be on uh, Pro Wrestling today. Uh... I've been out of professional wrestling a long, long time, but I've been getting a lot of mail from all you people out there. I know you've been wondering where I've been at. Well, I've been at home thinking about you. Wait a second. How is he getting this mail? From people who don't know where he is, and he hasn't been wrestling for a year. <laughs> well, it's, it, it, it's just ha- they, 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 they know where to mail him, let's just put it that way. Also, this is like, the cheapest looking interview set I've ever seen. It's, it's a cur- pretty bad. It's a, <laughs> it's a curtain with, it's a sheet curtain thing with Pro Wrestling USA placard in front of it. Yes, all right, go ahead. People, and bitch, not to be, yeah. Go ahead, John. Go ahead. Not, not to be corrective. Uh, this is uh, September 1984. Bob left the WWF in August of 1984. Yeah, sorry, my brain so was thinking 85 for some reason. So he hasn't been gone long. What? The, why would? Why would he even be getting letters? Well, <laughs> go ahead. Let's play it. Of professional wrestling I still recognize myself as the champion because I wasn't defeated I wasn't pinned and I didn't submit Backland, they no longer wanted me in professional wrestling and this program right here has brought me back into your living rooms and it's a great pleasure for me to be with these people and I'm going to continue doing the things that I've been doing for the last seven years. And I'm going to try to represent you people and myself as proudly as I can. Because I don't have the belt, but they can't take the title away from me. When I get pinned, 
And when I submit, then they take the title away from me. And I'll say the man was better than I was. Until that happens, I appreciate all your letters saying, Bob Backlund, to us, you're still the champion. And I'm not going to give up. I'll keep fighting. And nobody's going to make me change my ways. Nobody's going to make me lower my standards. Because I'm proud. There you have it, wrestling fans. Still considered by many as the WWF wrestling champion, Bob Backlund. <laughs> this is Jack Reynolds at ringside. Let's go up to the ring right now for more exciting action. Uh, obviously uh, not at ringside. Wow. So he, a lot, uh, he name drops the WF. And, and that, that that's just amazing to me. But, um, well, John, you had... Well, Chris, where is he working five days later? <laughs> Well, we're going to talk about that later. Yeah. Hold, hold on with that. But, John, I mean, God knows you have watched many Bob Backlund promos over the years by this point in time. You've seen, I mean, everything. You've lived through all of what would happen with the Iron Sheik losing the title and all the stuff that happened after that. And how Bob was totally, you know, downgraded in the company. I mean, mid-card, working, you know, all kinds of different guys. Just not in the same type of level as he had been for the last six seven years and now he's here with this suit you know then <laughs> cutting this promo i mean if you didn't know better because it's bob backland you'd think he was on drugs yeah what's going yeah. on john what's going on well first thing i mean <laughs> seeing as jack reynolds would be gone quite soon to the wwf he should have said to him but bob your manager threw in the towel <laughs> 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 That's as good as a submission to me, and I, I love how Bob, you know, they don't want me in wrestling. I, they, meaning the fans in the Northeast, I mean, people have the audacity to wonder if I'm pulling their leg or not when I tell you that Bob was getting booed out of the building in Boston, and I have a video a videotape of him in 1984 getting booed out of the building in Philadelphia. Madison Square Garden always seen never seemed to turn on bob but the rest of the northeast did and that interview shows you why and once again pro wrestling was going in one direction you know you've got hulk hogan out there you know screaming and and having fun and you've got bob backland with this whiny promo that he just did and my favorite part of the promo is bob shooting Talking about how they wanted to change me. And talking about how Vince talk, come up to him, wanted him to turn heel. He's actually talking about that in this promo. Yeah. Well, remember also what his pat line was for years? I didn't want to dye my hair green. Yeah. Which obviously no one was asking him to do. But something we should also note, too. John can correct me if I'm wrong. My understanding these days is that the whole deal with the finish of the title change was that even to other people in wrestling, the Vinces had told him to deny that he was in on it. Right. Uh, very much so. I mean, it, I mean, one thing I wanted to get back to, I, did, did Vince ask Bob to turn heel and dye his hair green in the process? Backlund says he did. And I believe him because I believe Vince wanted Bob to quit. He didn't want to fire Bob, he wanted him to quit. He wasn't going to quit unless he got a, a nice push out the door. So I, I do kind of believe that story. Yeah, I, I believe it in that way too. Because what do you do when you want somebody to quit? You try to make you try to see if they'll 
do something that goes against their standards or whatever. And Bob just said, no way, I'm not going to do that. So, okay, you know, that's fine. So it's no big loss. I also believe Bob when he said, you know, that he – I mean, Bob, I read his book. He's a very sincere guy. He kind of believed his his whole thing where, you know, he wanted to be a role model and he had a young daughter at home and he just didn't want to do that to his core audience, turn heel, which, you know, sounds kind of goofy, but Bob kind of, you know, he, he walks to the beat of his own drummer or whatever that expression is. Yeah, that's who he is. Yeah, always, always. But it's funny because when he does eventually turn heel, he's fantastic in the role. <laughs> but, but, but that only worked because of the timing. And uh, it would, it prob, it would have been interesting to see him doing that run, the heat in, as a heel in 1984. I don't know how it would have stuck, but it definitely stuck better in 1994 when he did it ten years later. So, oh sure. And, you know, one thing that that I noticed, even though I wasn't getting newsletters or anything in 1984, I knew there was a wrestling war going on. And I knew that the guy who had headlined Madison Square Garden for six years just prior to this was available and no one wanted him. And frankly, I don't I don't know what a JCP could have done with a Bob Backlund. I certainly don't know what Watts could have done with him. Um, He just, you know, it's like. Once again, he kept going back in time as wrestling was evolving very quickly. And, you know, here's a guy who was just the WWF champion that there's no role fall for. I mean, basically, him in the rest of this era, he works, you know, Pro Wrestling USA shows. He works some in Florida because he had been a name in Florida in the mid 70s. And uh, does his own little promotion uh, for a little bit uh, for a short time in New England. But, yeah, I mean, that's that's it. And then he fades away for all those years before he pops back up in Japan for UWF. So, um, yeah, it's one uh, thing, what a career. One thing I always found interesting, too, was how he always kind of acted like he disappeared immediately after the title loss. Like, and he yeah. did, like, got into tape trading and stuff. I always kind of assumed, like, you know, I saw the Hogan endorsement angle, you know, fairly early into trading tapes. But otherwise, like, it kind until you start seeing all that stuff, if you weren't around then, you would think he was gone right away, not like eight months later. Revision is history. Revision is history. Yeah. You know, I saw I saw a match in Boston, April 24th, no, April 14th, 1984. They had a double main event, one of which was Bob Backlund against Paul Orndorff. So you're thinking, OK, Orndorff, this is prime Orndorff. We're going to have a good match. It went to a 30 minute draw and it was one of the worst matches I've ever seen. And it was all on Bob. The crowd was lukewarm at best to him coming into the match. And by the end of the match, he was being booed. Not just. The, it wasn't just the match was being booed. Bob Backlund was being booed out of the building. It was brutal. But you know what? Let me say something nice about Bob. At least he saved his money, and he didn't have to work for the highest bidder. If he chose just to go home, which he did, he was able to do it. So good for him. Absolutely, yeah. All right, well, let's go to Jim Crockett Promotions. It was part of Promotion USA, but uh, we'll, we'll talk about what they got going on in their own promotion. And Dave said, it's really too bad this area is doing so poorly at the gate. The fastest-paced action in the country. Dave thinks that Don Carnotto is one of the 20 best wrestlers in the world. 
Plus the Youngbloods, Ricky Steamboat, and Barry Windham have all looked really impressive in the last tapes he saw. Yeah, Windham's about to leave. We'll talk about that later. But, John, uh, uh, how much Crockett were you able to watch at this point in time in, in 1984? In 1984, none of it. They were not on TV up here, but I eventually got just about every show from 1984, and I've seen it. Well, 84 is a very interesting year. In the year of transition. Yeah, the year of transition, and Dusty is now fully in charge here at this time, and he's got his guys in. But basically what's going on here is Dusty's trying to rebuild the territory from what they had just been through in the spring and summer, and that's why these gates are are so low right now. He's trying to rebuild it. Yeah, Dusty, and I give him a lot of credit. I mean, he went with what he wanted to do. He wasn't going to do, you know, the same old mid-Atlantic wrestling that they had been doing from, you know, from the 70s and the 80s. I, I mean, he gave Wahoo a prominent role, but Steamboat's role was reduced. Uh, Paul Jones was still out there, but he was a manager. Uh, Greg Valentine was gone. Roddy Piper was gone. And he brought in the guys that he saw had potential, like Tully Blanchard always struck me as a big fish in a small pond until he came to mid-Atlantic wrestling and showed that, no, he could do it anywhere. Arn Anderson, this is going to surprise people. When I first saw Arn Anderson in Georgia in 1983, I thought he was so boring. I thought that tag team with him and Matt Bourne was so boring. And Dusty saw something in Arn. Actually, Rick saw something in Arn first, but Dusty ultimately made the, the decisions. And he made Arn into a big star, not just a big fish in a small pond. There are other examples, but you know, Dusty went his own way, and he rebuilt that promotion. I mean, they were on fire in 85 and 86. Yeah. All right, we're going to run down the cards, and I'll get Bix's opinion on all this. So we'll we'll get the gist of what's going on here. All right, Asheville, North Carolina, September 30th, in front of 1,250 fans. Black Bart over Denny Brown. Manny Fernandez over Doug Vines. Zambu Express over Bret Hart, Barry Horowitz, and Keith Larson. Ron Bass defending the middle-like heavyweight title over Mark Youngblood. The ultimate assassin, Johnny Weaver, over the assassin by DQ in a Masters of Mass match. Where nobody amassed. And the, the main event of this show, 1,250 fans, Asheville, North Carolina. Dusty Rose and Ric Flair as a tag team, beating Tully Blanchard and Wahoo McDaniel. Then we have Fayetteville, North Carolina, the Cumberland County Memorial Arena, October 1st. Mike Davis over Paul Kelly. J.J. Dillon wrestling over Keith Larson. Gary Royal over Doug Vines. Black Bart Ron Bass over Brian Diaz and Mark Youngblood. Tully Blanchard going to a draw with Mike Rotunda, and then Wahoo going to no contest with Ricky Steamboat. Same night in Greenville in the Memorial Auditorium. Denny Brown over Jeff Sword. Zambuias over Joel Deaton and Sam Houston. Manny Fernandez over Don Carnotal. Assassin over the Ultimate Assassin. Barry Windham over the Key to Cola by disqualification. And then Dusty over Ivan in a Lumberjack match. And then Richmond on October 5th. Sam Houston over Jeff Sword. The Zambuias over Brian Diaz and Denny Brown. Black Bart over Mike Davis, Ron Bass over Mark Youngblood, Ivan Culp and Don Cronola over Brian Adias and Manny Fernandez, Dusty over Nikita by disqualification, Tully retained the TV title over Steamboat, and Ric Flair retained the War Heavyweight title over Wahoo McDaniel. All right, Bix, so we look at the cards here, and I'm sure you've seen some of this TV at the time. Uh, what are your thoughts on how Crockett was going here? I think a lot of it is just waiting for everything to fall into place and rebuilding from how bad Dory's booking had gotten earlier in the year. 
it doesn't make sense looking at some of these main events that they're drawing so badly. Yeah, and it's just, it got boring and kind of pedantic, and you had Dory as the masked outlaw, you had Angela Mosca Jr. getting pushed. Uh, John, I know you were a huge fan of uh, all that stuff. I, I'll tell you something. I, I've said this before. I've always thought Angelo Mosca Jr. got kind of a bad, bad rap. No, he wasn't any good. But what he should have been doing was he should have been wrestling in Portland on the undercard under an assumed name while he got some wrestling yes. experience. But no, he got they put him in the main events or they pushed him right away in Florida. And now they're pushing him again in mid-Atlantic. And he's just not ready. No, and the crowd, uh, the crowd just wasn't into him. And it, yeah, I mean, Dusty's bringing in his Florida guys. You know, Wyndham's here; he's about to leave, which we'll talk about in WF. And uh, I mean, you can see that this the, the building blocks are there, as we're saying. So, yeah, it's an interesting time. If you've never seen this stuff, go check it out on YouTube. There's quite a bit of it up there. In fact, there's a whole playlist of the year in transition on YouTube. So uh, go check it out. It's definitely a different promotion than what you would know in 1985 and 86, believe me. And it was way different than it was in 1983. Yeah, so that's, that's it. yeah exactly. Yeah. So that's a big reason why it's not drawing, but the guys from 1983 were all stale. Pretty much, yeah, exactly. Uh, Dave said, hit the Gerardo and Buzz Tyler heading here soon. Well, one of them did. <laughs> Hector didn't come in yet. He came in 86, but yeah, Buzz Tyler came in. And got a pretty good push in the area. Middle Lake Heavyweight Champion and everything. But, uh, yeah, some more Dusty's guys. There you go. All right, let's go to Championship Wrestling from Georgia. A story in the Atlanta Journal on October 1st mentioned that Dick Lane, a state representative from East Point, is suggesting a wrestling commission for the state based on fan complaints. The complaints from the wrestlers saying they can't get booked or they aren't making what was promised to them. Thunderbolt Patterson and Jim Wilson have a federal court case and are waiting on a court date at the moment against Jim Barnett based on this. All right, Bix, this is your in your neck of the woods. So uh, what are your thoughts on what's going on here with the Georgia uh, Athletic Commission, so to speak? I think it was misguided on the part of Thunderbolt and Wilson to think this would help them at all. Um unless their idea was specifically to use it as a cudgel to get what they wanted from the NWA and NWA members. Exactly. That's well, exactly what, what, what it was. Okay. What happened? What, what, yeah, what, yeah, what, John, what happens just a short time, maybe even a week or so after, you know, this stuff happens, who happens to be uh, on television? On TV? A gentleman named Claude Thunderbolt Patterson. <laughs> Hmm, funny how that works. <laughs> and Thunderbolt had to be seen to be believed on that Georgia show. I mean, he was just too old. Jimmy Hart got in this ruthless uh, jab at Anderson and Patterson. And he's like, you know, this is 1984, not 1954. And these two dudes looked like a couple of guys from the Honeymooners. <laughs> Yeah, that television aired at 7.30 in the morning on Saturdays. And, I mean, you had watched the old TBS show, watched it for a while, and then, you know, that went away, and now we have this. What were your thoughts when you saw this? 
<laughs> I mean, it, it looked and felt so minor league. Um, you had Ted DiBiase out there who was a major star and a major talent. Uh, and then you had, I, I mean, you know, washed up Tommy Rich, washed up Mr. Wrestling 2, old Ole Anderson, Thunderbolt Patterson. I mean, the, the, Jimmy Hart was tremendous. He was worth watching the show for alone. And then the WWF grabbed him and there was just nothing to watch. And the main event at the Omni on the first show they put out were was Ole Anderson and Thunderbolt Patterson against the New York Assassins, which a team that didn't actually exist. So that, that tells you all you need to know, really. Yeah, I mean, basically, yeah, I mean, it's it's only getting his uh, shot in on New York that he beat these guys that are from New York. So yeah. we're better than him. But <laughs> I love I, I tell you what, though, I, I love this show I love because it's just I don't know. It's just so campy and it's so not what the old show was. I don't know. I just I, it's one of those things you love ironically to me. Well, and it's a lot of fun once the Memphis guys come in. Well, Jimmy Hart, I mean, this is Jimmy Hart's first national appearance, you know, I mean, on, on that scale, and he kills it. I mean, him, the way he acts with Soli, Soli had never been with, you know, a manager like that. And just the stuff that Ole digs, and just yeah, Jimmy Hart is tremendous in, uh, in this run. Absolutely. It's a shame that he left. The, the the show first started, I think, at 6 or 6.30 in the morning, and then they got it on a little bit earlier, like 7 or 7.30, and there were times where, I, I, you know, I, what am I going to say? I'm 19 years old. I'm getting home late. I'm like, okay, do I stay up and see this or get up in like three hours and see this? But I, I enjoyed it at first, and then, like I said, it wore, wore on, and the Memphis guys stopped coming in and heart left. I mean, it was, it was pretty tough to watch. Ooh, yes, it was. I have a question how is it that wtbs it's wrestling you can't give them a better spot than six or seven in the morning whatever you've got going on at like nine or ten is that much better um i think i think it's one of those deals where i think they were kind of locked in and what they were showing which was movies which is it's funny that that, that they say that but i I think that they just were kind of locked in on the movies and you know, those movies actually did not do bad ratings. And that's another thing, too, to look at. I mean, wrestling was wrestling, but I, 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 I don't know. It, it is a weird thing that they couldn't have gotten, like, an earlier slot in the afternoon or something like that, you know? Yeah, it really yeah. is. But I mean, right, the Braves those... did – go ahead. I'm sorry, Vic, go ahead. But you're right, though. Like, the TBS movies always did, like, big ratings. Like, when you look and you try to find in old trades and even newspapers sometimes, like, the cable rankings – for like a given quarter in this era, because you didn't get week to week in 84, you know, and then even once you get week to week a little later, but still like for the quarterlies, like TBS Academy Award Theater is number one a lot of the time. And that's odd because my understanding of it was that the Braves did the best ratings on WTBS and wrestling came in second. And if that's the case, I mean, I'm just surprised they didn't just say, hey, wrestling, we'll put these guys on at 9.05 on Saturday or or 5.05 on Saturday, which Vince would have loved. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it was it, it, I don't know. I, I, I think what they were doing, they were they were giving them a trial basis to see how they would do. And it they didn't basically earn the right to probably get a better slot, so to speak. So we'll just keep them right here for right yeah. now. 
Now, towards the end, I was watching it sporadically, and I was really waiting for the mor- morning where it just didn't come on. They had a, an old movie or an old TV show in its place. That's that's how bad it was at the end. <laughs> yeah. Um. All right, Bob. Go ahead. I was just gonna say real quick. I don't seem to be able to find an an October first Atlanta Journal Constitution article, but there's one about the actual hearing that runs on the eighth. What day is it that he shows back up? On TV? Uh, Thunderbolt? Hold on. I'll uh, tell you. Uh, so I guess the hearing is on the 7th. Yeah, I gotta look it up. Um, oh, crap. Let me find it. Uh, Usually it's uh, quick with uh, all this, Chris. Well, I wasn't prepared for this. I'm sorry. But if you're not always, you, I mean on a dime. All right. That's why I'm surprised. November the 3rd. So about a, mo- a little less than a month after the hearing. Yeah. November 30th. It was taped on Halloween. Happy Halloween. So, <laughs> 24 days after the hearing. Yeah. All right. Bob Root broke Nick Patrick's arm on TV, and Nick showed up at Henderson's Arena this week saying that bl- blood was thicker than water, with some thinking his, fa- his father, the assassin, was coming for revenge. I guess those smart fans were thinking that because n- nobody knew that at the time that the assassin was Nick's father. I had no idea. Yeah. But clearly, right, let's, that's let's get... what they'd be hinting at, I would think. Well, the assassin doesn't come in until later on, and he's with Jimmy Hart. Yeah. All right, uh, we get a, a double shot here on September 30th. Knoxville, on a matinee show at the Civic Coliseum. Debbie Combs against Donna Day. Nick Patrick against Bob Roop. Tim Horner and Jerry Oates against Ted Oates and Rip Rogers. The Hollywood Blondes. Brad Armstrong against Bob Roop. Teddy Biasi, Ronnie Garvin, and Indian Strap Match. And then Marietta, Cobb County Civic Center. That night, Masao Ito went to a draw with Frank Lang, the future Frank Frankie the Thumper Lancaster. Debbie Combs over Donna Day, Tim Horner of the Italian Stallion, Jerry Oates over Rip Rogers by DQ, Brad Armstrong over Ted Oates, and Ole Anderson and Ronnie Garvin over Ted DiBiase and Bob Roop in a steel cage. Yeah, this is pre-Memphis, and this is the crew they had. So, yeah, you can see, yeah, this they needed help. Bad. They were running this weird angle on TV. As you noticed, uh, Tim Horner and Jerry Oates versus Ted Oates and Rip Rogers. Uh, You've got the Oates brothers wrestling against each other. And they would Gordon Soley would speak in very cryptic tones about, you know, what was going on with the Oates brothers. But it was never explained to us. It was one of the weirdest angles I've I've ever witnessed. And they never did anything to pay it off. Of course not. (laughs) That's the funny thing about it. Jerry Oates just like left. And Ted stayed with Rip for a little bit longer, and then he left. So, yeah, just a weird promotion. I put I put up a lot of their TV on my YouTube page for those who's never seen it. Don't, don't, go check that out. It's a it's a trip, believe me. And Thunderball, he's he's uh, <laughs> he's something else. All right, let's go to Chancho Press from Florida. You can come to the area are Jay, Jay Youngblood and Angelo Mosca Jr. coming back. Will be Bay Face feeding with Jim Hunt, Nineheart and Crusher Khrushchev. Speaking of Crusher, they're doing the opposite of him here that he didn't miss out. But here he is portrayed as a genuine Russian named Sergeyevich Khrushchev. Who's booking? <laughs> Moscow? Uh, uh, at this point in time, uh, Dutch isn't there yet. This is Buck Robley. Okay. I didn't realize he had a Florida booking run. Oh, yeah. That's it's why he's book. on the cards. Yeah, well, we're about to talk about that in a minute. Yeah, so yeah, Buck's booking. I need to um, the one but, gang again. 
Yeah, and, and the and the lead heel stable at this point in time, uh, other than Kevin Sullivan, is the Saint, Dave Sierra, Jim Neidhart, who's doing the Crusher Khrushchev gimmick, Russia sympathizer, and Crusher Khrushchev. And what a weird time this was in Florida, John. It definitely was. You know, one thing, Mid-South did the thing where uh, Crusher Darso embraces Russian philosophy and becomes Crusher Khrushchev. And this is right after Russia shot down one of our commercial planes. And I never understood why that never got over. I mean, I thought that would be the ultimate, you know, heel, a guy who is really American, but he wants to be a Russian. And it just didn't work in Mid-South. I've never understood why. And it didn't work here in Florida with Neidhart either. You know? <laughs> no, it did not. <laughs> No, Neidhart it, at this point was looked at as a potential superstar, and that kind of happened for him, but not nah, not a superstar. And not as a singles, no. Um, I think for Crusher, well, Darzo, I think he, it was just a matter of having the right people to play off of, and even you know the matching gear with Ivan and Nikita. I think just the whole presentation was what made it work in Crockett. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. And they never explained it in, in Crockett. Like why this guy speaks perfect, you know, you know uh, English with without an accent, or at least had a Midwest they, they accent. They did. They did. Yeah, I was gonna you say they did. They did explain it in Crockett that he was. They said an that, American. That he was born in Russia, but his parents moved to America. Now, did did they say that, or yes. did they? I remember. Okay, I missed it then. Yeah, it, it was not hammered home, John. Yeah, I mean, this is not one of those things where they constantly say it. There's like no this, need. There was this like in passing, like when he first comes in, Ivan talks about it like maybe once or twice, and that's it. You know, not hammering it home that this that that's what he is. Wouldn't they no, call yeah, him they, the Russian sympathizer or the or the turncoat or something on TV occasionally though? Very very early in it, like I said, it went away quick. Okay, they just they just dropped it quickly. All right, Chava Guerrero walked out during the week when he was told that he and Hector were losing U.S. tag titles in the heart crusher. Well, oh, I've got something to say about that. Okay. The, the Guerreros, I think, had they had they been hired by Crockett, would be as revered, and I mean this, as the Rock and Roll Express and the Midnight Express. They were that good a tag team. I spent years wishing that Crockett had brought them in his heels and turned them babyface. That way, that way we get the series against Rock and Roll Express and the series against the Midnights. But then as the years went on, I started hearing the Chavo stories, and this is a good example of one of them. I mean, you can't just march out because you're asked to lose the tag team titles. Yeah, and they, basically what they do is they go back to uh, Houston – and uh, work Houston, and then that leads to them going to Mid South, where they have their feud with the Rock and Roll Express in early '85. But uh, and they had yeah, fantastic I mean, matches too. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. On but, TV, they had, an, they had two excellent matches. Oh, I yeah, love but, the one where um, I think it's they do like a double team uh, Tapatia on Gibson. Yep. And then Ricky crawls in the middle to get the pin. Oh yeah, I love that yeah. finish. That was fantastic. I remember Joel Watts screaming, imagine the pain <laughs> right before he does it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, let's 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 look at the roster here. September 30th in Orlando, Eddie Grant Sports Stadium. We have the one-man gang over Buck Robley, Chavo over Ken Timms, Crusher, Neidhart, and Saint over Jay Youngblood, Joe Light, and Angela Mosca Jr. What a team that is. 
Billy Jack over Jimmy Garman in for the weekend. Dory Funt Jr. and Dick Slater over Larry Hamilton and Pistol Pez Watley by disqualification. Scott McGee went to a draw with Jesse Barr retaining his 40 heavyweight title. And Superstar Billy Graham over Kevin Sullivan in your main event. West Palm Beach, October 1st, 2761 at City Auditorium. Buck Rowley over Hector Guerrero. Youngblood and Mosca Jr. over Ken Timms and Dusty Wolf doing the Fabulous Blondes gimmick here. Larry Hamilton and Pistol Pez over Crusher and Nightheart. Jesse Barr going to a draw with Scott McGee. One Man Gang and Superstar over St. Kevin Sullivan. And Rick Flair retained the NWA title beating Billy Jack. And notice Flair's only in for this one shot. Tampa on October the 2nd. Uh, Spartan Sports Center. Hector Guerrero and Angelo Jr. over the Fabulous Blondes. Jay Youngblood, double key with Dick Slater. Hamilton and Pistol Pez over Crusher and Nightheart by DQ. Jesse Barber, Billy Jack. Scott McGee going to a 60-minute draw with Dory Funton Jr. for a Florida heavyweight title. And Superstar Billy over Kevin Silva by DQ. And then Miami on October 3rd, 3159. Buck Rowley over Joe Lightfoot. Larry and Pez over Crusher and Nightheart. Hector and the gang over the Blondes. Youngblood going to a draw with the Saint. Mike Graham, Angelo Jr. and Scott McGee over Jesse Barr, Dory Funton Jr. and Buck Robley. And a superstar Billy over Kevin Sullivan by disqualification. So yeah, I mean it's a it's a definitely a hodgepodge crew, John, of guys in Florida at this time. Well, two quick thoughts. Number one, they're still drawing decently, which surprises me, but the numbers are right there. Um, Number two, I remember I had never heard of Buck Robley until he was on the cover of a non-after magazine in 1979. He and Bill Watts were on the cover. And, I mean, that's a big jump from never heard of him to on the cover of a magazine. I had that magazine. I think Was that Ring Wrestling? I believe so. I had that magazine, yes. And I was just like, you know, who is this guy? And, you know, this kind of chubby guy in the T-shirt. He's balding with this beard. He, he looks like an unmade bed. And I was like, <laughs> what is he doing on the cover of a magazine? This was 79. And I can only imagine what Buck looked like five years later. About the same. <laughs> yeah. About the same. He really didn't change. So, yeah. But, uh, yeah, quite the crew. And Superstar Billy had turned babyface on Sullivan here. And. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the TV, again, TV up on YouTube, folks. Go check it out, uh, some of the TV from this era. So uh, definitely an interesting era, to say the least. All right, let's go to Southeastern Championship Wrestling. That will all tour October 1st in Birmingham. We have Bill Ash going to a draw with Scott Armstrong. Lord Humongous over Bob Owens. Porkchop Cash over Tommy Gilbert. Lumberjack Match, Bob Armstrong over Randy Rose. The Rap Patrol, Johnny Rich and Steve Armstrong over Mr. Wrestling 2 and Mr. Wrestling 3. Now, at this point in time, they're Mr. Wrestling and Mr. Wrestling 2, because Mr. Wrestling 2 was not Mr. Wrestling. He had done that gimmick in Mid-South. And Hercules, of course, was with Mid-South. But here is Pat Rose under the Mr. Wrestling hood. And then Arn Anderson over Mr. Olympia. And then Russian Chain match, Austin Idol over Boris Zerkov. Not Zukov, Zerkov in this territory. John Southeastern was, of all the territories in in, in this point in time, they were the one that got the least talk in the newsletters and the magazines. And as Bo James has told us before, that's what Ron Fuller wanted. He didn't want nobody knowing what was going on at at his neck of the woods. But, you know, the the first stuff I saw of this era was from you. 
that you had on some of your wrestling from the 80s tapes that we've done podcast about. What, what were your thoughts when you saw the Southeastern footage for the first time from this era? I I liked it. I honestly thought that they probably most shows they tried to cram a little bit too much in. It was uh, overbooked, shall we say, uh, hot shot. But what was the name of the Russian in mid south in nineteen eighty six? I cannot think of his Korshenko. name. Korshenko. Korshenko. All right, Boris Zukov should send that guy a thank you note every day because <laughs> otherwise he will Zukov would be known as the worst Russian ever. Well, no, the continental yeah. Russians from like '87. Oh yeah, yeah, Yuri Gordyanko and Vladimir. Oh god, that, yeah, Vla- oh man, Paul Demarco, old ass Paul Demarco. That's a fake Russian. Oh yeah, they they were bad. I oh. have not seen that. <laughs> I mean, I'm talking like in a major promotion, let like me, Boris let me, Zukov. I'll... I will link you to the video. All right. Get the show. You, and you you may have seen it before and just forgot because it's from 87. But okay. uh, yeah, I will definitely send you a link to see, to watch this because you will and you will love how shitty that is. Oh, they <laughs> love they're, shitty Russians. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, it's a fun, you know, fun little territory at the time. You know, they got their own little thing going on. It's like a quasi-Memphis. And, um, yeah, Bix, I mean – we thought I, I, I try to find as much of this stuff as possible, and, and thankfully over the years, you know, being uh, friends with Bo and doing the '80s set, you know, I able to piece together a pretty good um, run from this era, including what we're talking about right here uh, in this time frame. But uh, what were your thoughts on watching this for the first time, the Southeastern? Um, so the first stuff I would have seen would have been that compilation that. I forget, is it October to December or November to December? The one with the uh, Austin Idol gas station thing. November. Okay, so it's this general time frame, though. Yeah, same, same crew, basically. Yes, and I got it from our uh, our friend in uh, Rockland County, who has enough tapes to have a tape room. Uh, <laughs> a legend, yes. I immediately just fell in love with that territory. Like, it's it's like you say, it's like Memphis, but it's not. And just the other stuff, like the pre-tapes, you know, that they kept from the Liz Thatcher years and just, you know, the different, just the, it's like off kilter. I can't really explain it, but, and you've got all these great workers and promos and they have to keep creative because it's such a small crew, like in Portland, like it just all comes together really well. And, you know, they, they certainly have one of the better TV shows in the country at the time. Oh yeah, it's fun. It's like a Southern Portland in a way. Absolutely, yeah. Because the crew was about you, know, you look at this list here: two, four, six, eight, ten, twelve, sixteen guys. You know, I mean, that's big 16. for Southeastern. Like, yeah, sometimes they'd go twelve to fourteen. Yeah, so uh, yeah, real really fun territory. Go seek that out, folks, and that's on YouTube as well. There's plenty of it on YouTube. Yeah. Plenty of it. Yes. All right, Memphis. Mitzvah Coliseum, October the 1st, 4632 at this show. Kurt Von Hess over Johnny Wilhoit. Let's hear it for the boy. Yes. Mark Batten over the snowman. Rest in peace, snowman. Eddie so Crawford. So confirmed just... now as we record this. I didn't check earlier today. Yes. Cauliflower Alley tweeted it out, and uh, Dave talked about it. 76 years old. Yeah, so he was 40 when the Ali thing happened. Yes. That's amazing. Dirty White Boys over Mark Reagan and Rufus R. Jones. Eddie Gilbert retained international weight title over Lanny Poffo. Dutch Mantel and Tommy Rich beat the Nightmares for the Southern Tag Titles. More on that in a minute. And then our main event, what a 
match this is. Jimmy Valiant, Jerry Lawler, and Randy Savage as a babyface team beating King Kong Bunny, Rick Rude, and Jimmy Hart. And then we go to Louisville the next night. And, of course, as we've explained before, Louisville's a week behind because the TV's a week behind. Kurt Von Hess over Mark Batten. Lanny Poff over Johnny Wilhoit. International weight title, Dutch Mantel over Eddie Gilbert by disqualification. Dirty White Boys over Rufus R. Jones and Mark Reagan. Jerry Lawler and R- Randy Savage over Rick Rude and the Snowman. Something for King Kong Bundy. And uh, Southern Tag Titles, Tom, Dutch Mantel and Tommy Rich, who are the champions here, over the Nightmares. And this is the interesting part about this. Louisville, of course, is a week behind. The title change took place on October the 1st in Memphis. So this is one of those rare instances where they acknowledge a title change in Memphis the next day in Louisville because they're shooting an angle here where Dutch, Tommy Rich is late for the match. And Dutch has to go it alone. And Dutch is fighting the nightmares. They, Dutch and Tommy have had little issues the past couple of weeks on TV. Dutch goes along with the nightmares. Tommy shows up it, uh, late in the match's street clothes, cleans house, uh, gets the win, and then Dutch comes in and just beats the shit out of him because he's pissed because Tommy walked out on him. And they do this promo on television on the next Saturday, which is out of our week. They did the promo on television where Dutch explains that, you know, I just can't team with Tommy anymore. I can't depend on him, you know, all this other stuff. And again, this is like the Memphis deal. We talk about Bix. Nobody's turning here. Dutch is not turning. Tommy's not turning. But they they have their, their, their personal issue, and they can't get along, and they break the team up, and they have a little very small feud with each other because Dutch is about to leave. So... Again, some of that layered Memphis psychology we talk about here with uh, Dutch and Rich. What, what do you think about that, Bix? Yes, only in Memphis are wrestlers allowed to have somewhat nuanced adult relationships. <laughs> yes! It's, it's one of the few places where you actually can have that where guys don't necessarily turn. They just have their their feelings hurt by other baby faces, and they're going to feud with them for a little bit, and then everything's fine again, you know? I have a lot to say about this when we get to work class i have a lot to say about exactly what you're talking about okay well let's talk about the snowman john uh he just passed away sadly he's 76 and this is his first real run here he was dr detroit under a mask uh, named after the great dan Aykroyd film then jimmy hart takes his mask off and makes him jimmy hart jr which i just uh, posted on twitter the, uh, the day we're recording this and then he goes to Mid-South a few months later as the snowman to be the, the new junkyard dog, so to speak, the replacement. What were your thoughts on Snowman when you saw him in real time here? Well, new new junkyard dog version 5.0 by this point. <laughs> yeah, um, true, true. I, one of the greatest things I've ever seen in wrestling was in 1990 when Jerry Lawler's doing an interview and he's still a heel and Snowman just walks on the set. And it looked like something totally unrehearsed. The whole thing took maybe 20 or 30 minutes off the TV show, but it really had you thinking, okay, did I just see something go wrong? Like he and Lawler got into a heated argument. By the time the segment was over, 
Lawler had turned back babyface because of it. And it was just something that blew your mind in 1990. And, and everyone was asking, you know, is this real? Well, Snowman was back the next week. So obviously it was not real, but it was it was so well done. And um, um, I've always been a little bit disappointed that it fell apart because Snowman wound up quitting with no notice and things got comical. His lawyer asked Jerry Jarrett for a copy of the USWA rule book and the whole thing just went down in flames. But the, the angle itself was fantastic. Yeah, we did a show uh, with this year that, that for that week, and talking about that with our friend Phil Schneider, and I retweeted it out. And yeah, we went we went in depth on that, playing the whole thing and talking about it. And yeah, that's uh, it's a, one hell of a moment in wrestling history. Absolutely, there, there'll always be that for the snowman. Yes. I, I and, mean, that's... and it was on one of the first tapes I ever got from John. Well, there you go. How about I that? was unaware of that, but I I believe that was the first like. A swerve shoot interview that had ever been done in an American promotion. Of that way, yes. Where you're supposed that, to think that something is happening that shouldn't be happening. Yeah, right. In that, in that, in that fashion. Well, absolutely. I guess the only other one you could say, but even then, they shoot it more like a regular angle when Savage debuted. Yeah, yeah. But that but, shot but, yeah, more like a regular there. angle. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I agree with that. And yeah, within uh, five or six years, WCW was doing shoot fake shoot angles every single week. So we evolved <laughs> yeah. quickly. We sure do. All right, Jimmy Valiant, whose regular appearances have drawn some of the largest crowds of the year, probably won't mean much as now since he's a regular. Well, he's just he's there for the rest of the year, so he's taking time off from Crockett. Has has Bo told you the story about this? The house. Yeah. Yep. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Jerry Jarrett bought Jimmy Valiant a house, and yeah, I mean that. And Jimmy would come in, you know, every so often, spend a little time in Memphis, take some time off from Crockett, and then uh, you know go back. But that this is the last time that happens because '85 he's he's at Crockett until he leaves in '88. So yeah, this will be the last time that happens yeah, until until '89 by giving him the keys to the house. Yes, that's great a, story. What, what a way to give notice. <laughs> Rufus R. Jones is a newcomer here, and he's called Freight Train, wearing a conductor's hat and plays a harmonica. What an odd fit for Memphis. <laughs> but he wasn't there very long. Though, I'm but... sure he was way better at playing the harmonica than he was at wrestling. <laughs> yes. On the musical side, Jerry Lawler now has a, a new song I call Whip Busters, while Jimmy Hart has a retort called King Busters. Well, I guess we know what we're ending the show with this week. <laughs> yeah, we're not going to play it here, but uh, yeah, we'll end the show with that. So that's one thing Memphis had going on more than any other territory at this time, basically, John, is the, the I mean, Joe Watts had, was doing it Mid-South. He's it, really getting it going there. But Memphis with the, the topical stuff, the topical music videos, the topical songs. I mean, you watch Memphis and, and it is the, the like the hippest territory in wrestling at that time. You, you mean they didn't have an opening like Pro Wrestling USA? No. No. I mean, yeah, you're right. They would they would take thing uh, threads from common uh, current events and they put them on television or, or pop culture, just like Wimpusters. Wimpusters was funny. Oh yeah, the video was fantastic. Yeah, and you get to see Paula Lawler in a bikini in that video too. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it is uh, it is fun, funny the whole thing there. And yeah, Memphis was a hoot absolutely at this time. Oh, Paula Lawler was fantastic. I remember getting copies of the Jerry <laughs> Lawler show, and she was always the highlight. 
<laughs> yes, she was. She'd be on the show picking NFL teams, and I, I'd sit there and watch it anyway. <laughs> yes, with, with that, with her uh, accent and all that stuff. Oh man, Southern ladies, yeah, gotta love them. All right, uh, John will be back with us shortly. He had to uh, step out for a few minutes to record this, and me and Bits are going to handle the the rest of the uh, stuff here. Most and, of uh, it. Let's go. <laughs> well, the rest of the, the rest of the, the territory, so to speak. John will be back later. All right, Mid South Wrestling. Let's go there. Uh, I mean, this all tour in New Orleans on October the first. Ten thousand five hundred fans at this show. Bill Dundee over Rick McCord. Tommy Rogers over Art Cruz, Adrian Shooter over Bobby Fulton, Hercules Hernandez over John King, Miss South TV title, Terry Taylor, Retainer Style over Buddy Landell, Hacksaw Jim Duggan over FC Wheels by disqualification, Brickhouse Brown going to a draw with Butch Reed. But here is the match that drew the house. Make a net return to the territory to being gone for 90 days. The Rock and Roll Express returned and won the Miss South Tag Titles beating the Midnight Express. And then a ghetto street fight. Master G beat Hacksaw Butch Reed. And then Shreveport the next day. No crowd there listed, but Brickhouse of Art Cruz, Landell over Tommy Rogers, Adrian Shiro by Fulton, Doc over Duggan by DQ, Rock and Rolls over Midnights, Magnum retained North American title over Terry Taylor by Count Out. Of course, Magnum was in Fort Worth on the day four. And Master G over Butch Reed in the ghetto street fight. So, um, yeah, Bix, uh, Rock and Rolls are back. Back to stay for a little while, and you know, Mid South in '84. You know, the Rock and Roll's Midnight's feud in the early part of the year was was smoking hot. You know, Magnum and Wrestle Wrestling too, and all that stuff, and they had a lot of good things going on. Last but MP, this right here, yeah, this right here is the beginning of the Mid South that would you know go on a hell of a run here, and uh, and yeah, it was uh, getting them back in and. Uh, Beating the Midnights was uh, was big for business. Yeah, um, I mean ten thousand for just a regular New Orleans show. Well, they were really pumping it up as being you know the return of the Rock and Roll Express, you yeah. know, and they had been that gone really for impressive. that is impressive, and they've been gone for ninety days. So, yep, they've been in Memphis and Florida, and, and they've done some shots at different places. But yeah, they uh, San Antonio, they did shots there. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a big deal. Yes. And we'll talk more about Master G in just a few minutes. All right, Hercules Hernandez turned into one of the best upcoming heels of the business. If Buddy Landell plays his role great as well. If you've never seen Hercules in Mid-South and Sheik Hercules, I mean, you see what Dave's talking about. You see this guy, he's, it's his best run as a worker, and uh, he looks fantastic. He's, he's a turned into a good character. Yeah, he could talk. So yeah, this he looked like the future major superstar in the business. And like we said before, his work is actually still very good in the WWF. It's just that his biggest push comes with the face turn, and he he for the most part he was not a guy who should have been wrestling as a babyface. No, not in that character at least. No. No, so if he, he if he t- he had turned face in mid south and was working that style, I think it would have worked fine. Yeah, but not in the WWF. No, no. All right, um, Butch Reed's about to be turning face in November if he comes back from his knee surgery he's having next week. 
They wrote him up by having Master G use the master lock on him at the uh, sh- show in New Orleans on October the 1st, which they played it on television. They played the ending and showed the injury and all that stuff. So, yeah, that's why Reed didn't go on his All Japan tour because he had to have his little surgery done. But he's out, out long. It's, uh, I guess, more of exploratory surgery or arthroscopic or something like that. So, yeah, he's back in action in a few weeks. So not a long-term absence. This has got to be early for something like that then, right? If he's getting his yeah. scoped in 1984. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dave noted that the September 29th TV show taped on September 26th at Shreveport was as well put together a one-hour show as Dave's seen anywhere in the country. The TV at this time was fantastic. Absolutely. And uh, they've been that way for a while, but they're really getting getting their groove now. And this is a groove they stay in pretty much for the rest of the run. Now, a couple things from the show. We have Jim Cornette cut a promo about all the fines he's been getting lately from Mid-South over all the different things he's done. So let's go to a masked Jim Cornette because he had his head shaved and uh, he was wearing a mask to cover up his baldness. So let's go to uh, to Jim here, and uh, yeah, it's a Jim Cornette promo. So here you go. And let me tell you something, friends. A large controversy has been swirling around Jim Cornette and the fines. He's carried it to the board of directors of Mid-South Racing, and no person in this world can bring us up to date than our guest commentator and the president of Mid-South Sports, Bill Watts. Well, thank you, boy. Yes, it has been a very troublesome thing. Three weeks ago, one of the most distasteful incidents I ever saw happened here on Mid-South Wrestling when they were signing a no-disqualification title match for the Mid-South Tag Team titles. And the more we reviewed the films, the more we could see that Cornette and the Midnight Express had planned just exactly what they were going to do to the Fantastics. And Cornette took our new rules and regulations where we barred a two-before. We barred a tennis racket, a steel chair, and a, and a steel chain. But his lawyers found legalese or terminology or loopholes. He threatened lawsuits, and we said, we're going to wait two more weeks to make a decision. Well, Cornette, I want to say one thing to you. There comes a time when everybody's got to stand up for what's right, even though it may not be written just perfectly. And Mid-South's not going to back down from anybody or anything. We are instituting a fine. We are finding you the largest fine in history, $30,000, $10,000 for each man, you, Cornette, and Eaton. And there is no more hearing about it. The money has already been collected, but Cornette has made some strong statements and ultimatum. Let's listen as Jim Ross interviewed him today before the show. Well, ladies and gentlemen, as you have heard, the Midnight Express, Jim Cornette, Bobby Eaton, and Dennis Condry have not been fined $10,000, but they have been levied a fine by Mid-South of $30,000, the biggest fine in the history of professional wrestling. Now, by the way, do you know the story with Cornette's mask here and why it looks the way it does? No. So... It's a mask that looks kind of grayish, bl- ashy, light black, for lack of a better term, with a regular, like, leatherette-type black trim. It's an assassin mask, and he used a uh, Sharpie to color in the rest. <laughs> Fantastic. At this time, Mr. Cornette has something to say. All right, let me say this. It is not the fine that concerns me $30,000 because I called home to mother, and even she had to ask what I was going to do with $30,000. But when I told her that Bill Watts was behind it, she agreed to send it immediately. It's not the fine that bothers me because I also could have the fine overturned with my attorneys because they are the best in the world. But I know that that bald-headed, pot-bellied, sway-backed, broken-down old ex-cowboy, Cowboy Bill Watts, 
is behind this whole thing because I have my spies too. He pushed it through the board of directors. So I don't want to have the final return. I want humiliation from Bill Watts. I want Bill Watts within two weeks to bring me my check for $30,000 back on national TV and give me a public apology or elsewise, Bill Watts, I'll hit you and Mid-South Wrestling right between the eyes. Dennis Condry and Bob Eaton, the Midnight Express, the Mid-South Tag Team Champions will leave Mid-South and we will not defend those tag team belts here ever again. Then what will you do, Mr. Smarty Pants? Then what will you do without the tag team champions? Two weeks or we're gone. Well, Jim Cornette, nobody has ever intimidated Mid-South and make us back down. And I assure you, two weeks from today, we will make no apology and offer you no check back. Now let's go to the ring and Jim Ross for our first great bout. Hey, wow. What, how apropos the Rock and Roll Express win those tag titles on October the 1st. <laughs> yeah. Um, we've talked about this a little bit before, but... On, there are, I think, multiple levels on which Mid-South is Cornette's best work. Yes. Because he's never trying to be funny. No, he's not at all. He's a brat. Yes. You never get comedy Jim Cornette in Mid-South. Yes. Now, there's a degree to which, now, when he would flip the switch, like, in Well, you, you kind of you do, you kind of do with the party, the the the, the cake, and... Yeah, there's moments, but yeah, you don't, you don't really get it as much here right. at all. But like it, it works in Crockett. It, like when he does flip the switch to be more evil, because then it's kind of like the shock of having the funny guy do that helps. But by and large, I like the more dialed in, bratty, evil Mid South Cornet the best. Yes, and he's he's really great here at doing that. Yeah, absolutely. He's been in the you know he's been working as a manager for like what like a year and a half when he sets box office records. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. All right, so the Midnight's have a match on TV with Brickhouse Brown and Master G, the newcomer. So. The Eels are trying to go out to Master G. They can't let this guy come in and be the New York junk, new junkyard dog. So let's go to that. The collision. What a collision. Bob Eden trying to make a tag. Master G is calling, calling for Brickhouse to come to the tag. The Brickhouse didn't make the tag. Brickhouse is still stuck in there with Dennis Condry. Cornet pulled the top rope down. Cornet pulled that top rope as we saw him do once before. But Robert Gibson, one of his favorite maneuvers. Brickhouse is down. They're all in there. Master G is cleaning out. Master G is cleaning house. Butch Reed in the ring. Ernie Land's in the ring. Ernie Land's in the ring now. Nature Boy Buddy Landell, they're all on Master G. Butch Reed's got a belt. He has a belt, He's going to whip him. Butch Reed's going to whip him. Butch Reed's laying the leather to him. Master G is so mad, he's still even five of them can't hold him, boy. Master G is so mad about it, he can't be held. But there's too much horsepower. 
Sonny King scaling them steps. Back to normal. We'll be right back after this word from the exciting Mid-South Wrestling Television Network. God, Mid-South was so good. Also, <laughs> interesting little touch there. That Reed is the one who introduces the belt. Yep. So the racial optics of Landell whipping Reed, I got to think that's a conscious choice to lessen, excuse me, whipping Master G after Reed introduced the strap. I feel like that's got to be intentional. Well, that's why Walsh played up a commentary. Talk about the injustice of Buddy Landell being the one to whip on Master G as Butch Reed and Ernie Ladd are holding him down. Right. You know, yeah. and watch that's and, and that's the type of stuff that Watts was so great at selling these babyface beatdowns. Yes, uh, a group of heels. So yeah, just great stuff, man. Go watch all this stuff as much as you can. It's on the WWE Network again, so go watch it. All right, um, let's move on to Southwest Championship Wrestling. Killer Tim Brooks has turned babyface. He turned uh, the, on the September 29th TV show. As Jonathan Boyd had put up a $5,000 bounty on Manny Fernandez. Brooks came to collect it. About the time Boyd and Joe Blanchard got into their weekly argument. Boyd, that Blanchard, told Brooks to finish him off. Brooks asked for his $5,000. Boyd told him the money was not for putting Fernandez out of wrestling, not just out of Texas. Anyway, Boyd wound up slapping Brooks. Brooks hit Boyd with a chair. Supposedly Boyd bladed himself in three places. It was covered in blood. The sheep version attacked Brooks and turned him into a pumpkin as well. I wish we had this, but uh, yeah, what a uh, what an, and I do have this on DVD, so I might upload it for the show. But uh, yeah, what an angle this is! Yeah, you talk about some blood. I think Boy was wearing a white shirt, of course. So yeah, this is a uh, Southwest angle, heavy blood, heavy juice. So who's booking here, Boyd or Luke Williams? Uh, Boyd, Boyd. I mean, probably both. You know, have the input here, but yeah, Boyd's mainly booking. Yeah, yeah, you can tell. <laughs> yeah, all right, McAllen, Texas, on September 30th, we had Tony Falk over Steve Pardee, Princess Jasmine over Evelyn Stevens, Cheeky Star over Eric Emery by disqualification, Brett Sawyer over Dan Greer and a leather strap on a pole match, and the Sheep Herders and the Mongolian Stomper beat Alberto Madrid, Killington Bros, and Voodoo Malamba, Big Red, in his uh, Voodoo gimmick. Huh. Then the Hemisphere Hemisphere Arena on October the first partial results four thousand fans. This show we have Killer Bros Alberto Madrid Malumba the Stomper and the Sheep Herders. Tommy Rich in the town over Abdul the Butcher by disqualification and then Kanek yes Kanek team with Brett Sawyer and Cheeky Star to beat Eric Embry Dan Greer and the Medic. So we've got Not our sure dueling uh, fabulous blondes. At the yes, because. Ken Timms and Dusty Wilson, Florida, and Eric and Dan are in, in San Antonio. I forget, was the first team Ken and Dusty or Ken Eric. and Eric? Ken and Eric. 
so then when Ken moves on and Eric doesn't want to, Ken picks up Dusty and Eric picks up Dan Greer. Yeah, well, Dusty was a San Antonio guy who uh, knew Ken. And, of course, Eric and Dan you know, were friends for years. So going back to pre-wrestling. So, so Dan Greer's so, yeah. a Kentucky guy then, I take it. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Well, he worked with Danny Varga. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I mean, I mean, they they were Dale Man and all that stuff together. So, oh yeah, they go way back. Yes, yeah, that was some fun territory at this time. There's a little bit of on YouTube from this era, and uh, definitely, like I say, heavy blood for sure. Still drawing some too. Yeah, not bad. Yes, Vinnie Valentine. Yeah, I was just gonna say also Valentine. just weird that it ends up being bought by Fred Barron to run while he's still the world class. Well, he already owns it by now. Oh, he does own it by this point. Okay. Yeah. When is the, and when he's is the sale? And he's promoting world class. So that's what I'm saying. When is the sale? It's in 84, but it's already happened. It's so strange. I'd love to know more of the story there. Yeah, it is strange. All right. Uh, Vinny Valentino failed to arrive. However, Leo Burke is in as a babyface regular, and Dave's told he's very good. Yeah, he was good. And then he turned heel not too long after he showed up. But yeah, Leo Burke, uh, definitely a, a good wrestler, good talent. Yeah, Vinny Valentino couldn't afford the gas to get to Texas after he <laughs> spent it all on his special entrance music. Yeah. And then Dave knows that Rip Oliver will be coming in soon. Well, that well, doesn't happen. Maybe ha- heading in soon. Maybe heading in soon, but that doesn't happen. So there's that. All right, uh, St. Louis. Since the AWTV airs here, they thought they could double-turn Bruiser Brody and Crusher Blackwell on October the 5th since they were on the opposite dynamic here in uh, St. Louis and the AWA. Fans didn't play along, though, and cheer Brody heavily. Well, saying since the AWA TV airs here is a weird way to frame that, though. At this time, St. Louis is being promoted off of a three-hour block on a UHF station consisting of AWA World Class in Kansas City with local promos inserted throughout. The AWA TV is effectively part of the St. Louis TV. So, of course, you'd try to do that. It makes sense, but it wasn't going to work. <laughs> it wasn't going to work, but I get why they tried. Yeah, I, I got you. I mean, it's yeah, the official right. TV. It's not just a sh- it's not just a, an out-of-town wrestling show airing in the area. It is part of the official St. Louis TV. Yeah. And you kind of have to do that because of the, the the issues that you have with that, and that's what we talk about, you know. Uh, when you have this these markets that have the uh, competing television, like Dallas and uh, Memphis and USWA era, you know. So, yep. all right, uh, the Kill Auditorium, forty five hundred fans on October the fifth. So, yeah, not not that great, but about what what WWF did. Because what WWF did, uh, as I scroll down the notes, we'll talk about that later. They did uh, 3,500 fans, so they beat them by a thousand. Um, so that's good for them. Um, and they got an interesting show here, and, Bro- and Brody and Blackwell, you know, being the main event. As we got the Animal and Gypsy Joe beating Marty Janetti and Tommy Lane, Tommy Rogers here, but I always call him Tommy Lane because that's who he was. The Uptown Boys in the opening match. Mr. Pogo over Tony Russo. Oh. Interesting. Yes. Bulldog Bob Brown and Jim Brunzel over the Grapplers. Hacksaw Higgins over Tug Taylor, something for Dick the Bruiser. 
Oh, that's that's a match. A, I mean, nothing against Tug Taylor, but something for <laughs> Dick the Bruiser in St. Louis. Yes, I know. Tony House over Paul Ellering. Adam on Hawk over um, Buzz Tyler and Ted DiBiase in 23-19. And then Blackwell and Brody going to WDQ in less than nine minutes. Chair throwing bloodletting violence. Nothing says Bob Geigel like having a card that features both the animal and the animal. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, if you want to know what got Brody to put this group ahead of the other groups, it was the sizable guarantee. Okay. That'll do it. I'll do it. <laughs> now I'll get Brody in. All right, AWA. They're on TSN Network in Canada at 5.30 every Friday afternoon. Jim Crockett tried to get the spot and put a bid for it. And he was willing to pay for the airtime. But they turned him down because his show had a lack of Canadian content. Dave told TSN's fan Vern Gagne for the privilege of airing his show. They turned down getting paid. Because well, because they've got the regulatory got, stuff, yeah. Exactly. Wow. That's crazy. Well, at which I get it from their position, and Vern had already been taping the Winnipeg shows for a few years. I don't know if he was using them for They much. were. They what were because they, they had TV. They had TV in Canada in the early 80s. I mean, we have that. Oh, uh, so they were airing locally. It was airing locally, yes. Yeah, World Championship Wrestling. So because he already had Canadian footage he was taping regularly, of course it goes to Vern. Yeah, and that's why as soon as TSN starts up, you get the Matt Classics on that show as well. Right, because they had been taping. Because they were already taping. Yep, exactly. Great stuff. I love the AWA TSN shows. Yes. Very fun. AWA is expecting Terry Gordy to start with him once the All-Japan Tour ends. But something he may just go back to world class. He did. <laughs> but he'll be in the AWA next year. Yeah. But there you go. All right, September 30th, St. Paul at the Civic Center. Just under $8,000. $71,000 gate. Brad Rangans over Mr. Electricity, Steve Regal. Kurt Henning over Chris Markoff. Billy Robinson over Tony Allen's by disqualification. Jim Brunson over Larry Zabisco. The Fabs over Nick Buckwinkle and Mr. Saino, Blackwell and Brody going to WDQ, and the Road Warriors retain the attack titles beating Crusher and Baron Von Raschke. So, yeah. Again, AWA was not dead, folks, as soon as Hulk Hogan left. $71,000 gate, 8,000 fans. That's pretty pretty good. So, All right, they ran Denver on October the 4th. Now, Blackwell and Brody no-showed this show. With promoter Gene Reed announcing the heavy rains in Denver had prevented their planes from landing, but that story was checked out and there were no flights delayed, canceled, or turned away due to the storm. Because they just weren't there. Okay, I'm curious who did the checking out in 1984. <laughs> it's Denver, so it may have been Zane Breslov. <laughs> Does that make sense? Oh, checking oh. on the rival promoter to see if... Uh... Yeah. 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 Awesome. Well, who would have the connections to do something like that in Czech in 1984? Probably Zane Breslov. Mm-hmm. 5,000 fans at the Auditorium. Brad Ringham's over Mr. Electricity. Kurt Henning over Jim Brunzel in your scientific match. Tony Ellis over Larry Zbysko by DQ. And then turned into a tag match where Tony and Jim Brunzel beat Steve Ringham and Larry Zbysko. Kurt Henning over Sheik on a Casey by DQ. And the black, Blackjack lands in the fabulous ones over Nip Bump Winkle, Billy Robinson, and Mr. Saito. And almost 20 minutes is your main event. 
Fabs looks so out of place here. Yes. So out of place. You get why they left and went to the AWA. Bigger markets. Bigger markets. But Vern had no idea what they were or what to do with them. No. All right, Portland. The reason for the recent disappearance of Matt Bourne and Buddy Rose in Portland is because promoter Don Owen got word of their big plan of building up their feud, then both leaving the work for the WF, so he told them both to leave. How about that? They were planning to, to, to fuck Don Owen over, and he got wind of it, and he told them to go fuck themselves. And they go to the WWF. And they go to the WWF. And he takes them back. Born before Buddy, but he takes them back. That's something, man. That's crazy. Also shows uh, good to have your dad being a legend in the territory, too. Yeah. Bobby Jaggers ends up being face to an interview with Rip Oliver, and Ken Nagasaki made his debut in September 29th, beating Kevin Kelly. Yes. Nails. All right, results from that show at Sports Arena in Portland. Bobby Jaggers over Doug Summers. Rip Oliver over Siva Offing. Scott Ferris went to a draw Mondo Guerrero. Kendo over Kevin Kelly. And Mr. Ebony, Tom Jones, and Mike Miller went to a draw with Jerry Gray and Tom Pritchard. They've got an interesting crew at this time. Yeah. Hodgepodge of names, just like Georgia at this time. Just all kinds of different guys that, you know, you got your regulars and your homesteaders, and you got guys who were only here for a short time and guys that would come and go. So, yeah, a different crew, so to speak. Absolutely. Hawaii. Yes, we go to Hawaii. Polynesian Pro. They ran in Honolulu October 3rd. Richie Magnet went to a draw with Mighty Milo. Matt Bourne over Sam Samson. Hoagie Young over Prince Kamehameha. Steve Offie over Bad on by DQ. Rocky Johnson over Matt Superstar by DQ. Former Ipo over Doug Summers by DQ. Three in a row. Caravan Erico with the Missing Link. Polynesia Pro Tag Titles. Sakali and Superfly 2. We defeated the champion team of Lars Anderson and Sadie Saguchi. And our main event, Mark Lewin went to a double disqualification with the Magnificent Morocco. And Norionaga and Fumino Nakura was scheduled to be on this show, but they no-showed since they have left New Japan for All Japan Pro Wrestling. Or, excuse me, Mr. Otsuka. <laughs> so, yeah, this is Morocco's, you know, time away from WBF. And he's working. Season. Yeah. So he's working these shows. Well, he got he got fired. You know, they fired him. Oh. I forget the reason. I forget the reason why he was fired, but he was fired and came back, and hmm. you know later on. But yeah, it's just where he was at. So, yeah, it's a so very they, poly pro lineup. Oh yeah, I don't think Absolutely. I've ever heard of Hoagie Young before, though. He worked uh, Hawaii shows mainly. Yeah, is he a Samoan so, gentleman? Um, I don't think so. Oh, really? Okay. Generally, I assume if there's someone on these shows I haven't heard of before, they're probably Samoan, like uh, <laughs> Farmer Boy or Mighty Milo. But Leroy Brown. Yes, the other Leroy Brown. But anyway, there we go. Let's go to the World Class Championship Wrestling now, and uh, they run a show in San Antonio at the Hemisphere Arena on September 30th, where Jules Strombow beat Scott Irwin. Jake Snake Roberts beat Buck Zumhoff. Jose Lothario and Sweet and Champ Brown Sugar. Skip Young over the PYTs, Norville and Coco. Gina Hernandez and Nicola Roberts, Baby Doll, went to a draw with Kevin Von Erich and Stella Mae French. 
North American heavyweight title. Magnum TA and Butch over Butch Reed to retain his title. And then Chris Evans and Kerry Von Eric over Killer Khan and The Missing Link. And um, it's interesting that Adams and Kerry are teaming up here because the heel turn has already happened. It was taped, but it hadn't aired in San Antonio yet. So he's still working as a babyface on this show in San Antonio. So we got that. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. Magnum TA actually made his debut at San Antonio show, but worked in Fort Worth on October the 1st. And there's talk that he may become a regular here next month. And that was the original plan. And Magnum tells this, you know, story a lot that instead when Barry Windham and Crockett, Magnum was supposed to go to world class. And then when Barry Windham left, Dusty called Magnum up and said, would you like to come home? Magnum said, absolutely. And he jetted off back home to uh, Mid-Atlantic. And John, imagine a world class where we have Magnum TA in the mix. It is hard to imagine because I would, I mean, I, I had not heard that until I got the show notes a couple of days ago. Um, I, I'd never known that. And it surprises me because I would think world class would not bring in a guy who would be a threat to Kerry Von Erich being the number one guy with the girls. Um, but obviously here we are they're, They were ready to do it. You know what? I think the reason is for that, that they were willing to do it. And then they do it with, they do it with Billy Jack as well. That's who replaces Magna TA is Billy Jack. Yes. Well, it's the, he was never going to be a threat. No, but he, yeah, he was different, but they're different yeah. archetypes is my point from the Von Erich. But he takes, oh. he, he takes the spot. Yeah, you know, the yeah. spot, the roster spot. But yeah, but go do you ahead. get what I'm saying though? Like, they're the burlier, more rugged guys. They're not the same kind of heartthrob as the brothers are. Yeah, they're for the older women. <laughs> <laughs> you know, kind of like how in Memphis you had the Fabs, and then you had the Rock and Roll Express, and so you had that. You had your your dynamics there among the ladies. Where you had your younger you know, the guys for the younger girls and you guys for the 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 uh, more of adult ladies. So well, speak, and, but... and the adult men as well. But... <laughs> yeah, I, we we agree to disagree. I see Carrie Von Eric and Magnum TA as being very similar. I see they what are. you're saying, but yeah. I, I th- that that's what I was saying. I think Magnum was too similar to Carrie Von Eric, and thus we kind of. You know, split the audience a little bit. Well, I mean, they were going to do it, so here we go. I mean, if Magnum said so. Yeah, and and also that's kind of what was customary between Watts and Fritz at the time, too. Was that when someone's done in Mid South, they go to Dallas? Yeah, that's a lot of that talent switching back and forth. Now, Chris Adams fully submitted his heel turn on October first in Fort Worth as he suffered El Grand Marcus, who was never supposed to be there anyway. And Adam's team with Gino Hernandez and Jake the Snake to face Carrie and Mike Van Erich and Buck Zumhoff, who subbed for Kevin, who was still injured from his attack by Adams on September 28th at the Sportatorium. Kevin showed up, though, to save the Bay faces and got them disqualified. Talk is that Adam's turn was rushed because the crowds have been way down since the Freebirds left town after Labor Day, and their crowds was as low as they had been in well over a year in fact, the September 28th show where Adam's turn was down to 2,100 fans, which was the lowest crowd since December 1982 before the Freebirds' turn. John, I mean, this you're watching World Class at the time. World Class is big. And Chris Adams was, you know, as big of a bay face as anybody in that promotion. Of course, Gary Hart's managing him. So 
you know, that sign was there. But what were your thoughts on him turning heel here on Kevin? Well, I have a lot to say about this. Um, this was the first time that I've ever seen suggested that Adam's turn was rushed. I don't agree with that. I thought it was perhaps one of the most underrated turns in wrestling history that I have ever seen. And I'll, I'll walk everyone through it. Gary Hart uh, becomes babyface. He's he's feuding with Skandor Akbar. He takes on Chris Adams as his protege. Now, me being as young as I was, I did not smell a rat. I will be honest with you. They have the match. It was uh, Chris Adams and Kevin Von Erich against Gino Hernandez and Jake Roberts. Stella May comes to ringside. And she screws up and she winds up with Chris getting pinned. Gary Hart is understandably upset and he kind of gets in Stella May's face. Kevin Von Erich tries to back him off. And at first, it's Kevin's like, yeah, hey, Gary, please don't do that. That's not cool. Gary refuses. And then Kevin becomes more adamant. Chris Adams then is like, you know, he starts roughing up Gary Hart a little bit. Chris Adams steps in, kind of like Kevin, please don't do that. Kevin nails Gary Hart, and then Chris Adams super kicks Kevin Von Erich, and the crowd goes silent. It, they're stunned. I thought it was great because isn't that how fights start in real life? Like one person won't knock it off, and then it escalates from there. Yes. Most of most. Yeah. But I yeah. think I kind of get what Dave is saying then because that's – he's not really a heel in that scenario, and that's probably why they do the Cotton Bowl angle to cement the turn more. Sure. That's what makes it a great turn because yes. everyone has their side of the story, and Adams isn't truly turned yet. It's kind of Gary Hart who's getting most of the heat. But you know what I'm saying? It's like you understand everyone's side of the story. I understood why Chris Adams super kicked uh, Kevin Von Erich in the jaw. He just punched Gary Hart. Yeah, so we all... get to the Cotton Bowl. Go well, ahead. Also, yeah, we should just hard. add too real quick. Adams doesn't the, the way Adams promos go, like does an excellent job of explaining why he would take on Gary Hart as manager. Because Hart Gary was not entirely a babyface; he was the babyface in the Akbar feud, but he's still Gary Hart. But Adams is like, well, look, look at the success this man has had managing people in this part of the country. If he's willing to manage me and mentor me, why would I not take him up on that opportunity? That makes total sense, and you're right. So then they have the Cotton Bowl match. Clean match. Kevin Von Erich pins Chris Adams clean. All right, Kevin wins. Kevin grabs the mic, and he's like, I, I can't believe I'm doing this, but Chris Adams, you go ahead and fire Gary Hart, and I'll, 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 I'll try to try to forget about all this. Kevin, who the hell are you to tell Chris Adams to fire Gary Hart? Who are you? Who are you to make that request? Right? Yes. <laughs> now, okay, Chris overreacts a little bit by almost killing Kevin. Oh, but... fair. Yes. And you have girls sobbing at ringside. It was a, just an unbelievable scene. But again, I'm like, yo, in real life, what is, well, Kevin, what are you doing? You can't ask him to do that. So then we get to the part where it all it all falls apart. And I had a real problem with this. All of a sudden, Chris Adams is with Gino Hernandez and Jake Roberts substituting for whoever it was that uh, Kevin who missed the match. And there was a missing piece in there. It's not there unless I just missed it. You needed to have Gino, Gino Hernandez get on TV 
and say, Chris Adams, it's three Von Eriks against one of you. And Buck Zumhoff's not going to help you. Joel Strombo's not going to help you. Iceman Parsons is not going to help you. But you can help us, and we can help you. And if you come let's talk about this. Well, come over and talk to me, Chris, and we can help you even out the odds with the Von Eriks. But that was missing. Instead, you just have Chris show up and be with these guys with no apparent reason. That's something I've always had a problem with in wrestling. Like when Pat Patterson turned babyface in late 79, early 80 in the WWF, all of a sudden, like it was like the babyface roster was like, oh, Pat, after all those horrible things you've uh, done no. to us over the years, come right on in. I didn't realize you had a problem with Lou Albano. That's not how things should work in wrestling. That's why I loved it. In Smoky Mountain in 94, I think. Oh, I know where you're going with this, yeah. When Dirty White Boy turned babyface and Tracy Smothers was not having it. I thought that was so realistic. I wish we had a little bit more realism with this. Yeah, that's like the all-timer when it comes to that. Guys that have feuded forever, and I'm like, he's like, yeah, I mean, he may be good now, but I still don't trust him. You know, I still don't like this guy. Uh, Yeah, that's... That's the way it should be. Yeah, the fact that this guy's just immediately teaming with Gino and Jake, you know, after just having a, you know, the match with them at the Sportatorium just days earlier, yeah, that's it's 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 too it's too quick, and it goes to that whole rush thing as well. They they weren't planning it out. It just they just did it to do it, and yeah, I mean, let's look at this show we're talking about. October first at Will Rogers Coliseum, nine hundred fans. This is nineteen eighty four. This ain't 1987. 900 fans. Chris Adams retained the TV title, beating El Gran Diablo. Buck Zumhoff over Coco Ware. Iceman over Wobble Irwin. Matt and T.A. retained North American title, beating Missy Link by DQ. Then Chris Gino and Jake over Carrie, Mike, and Buck. And then Carrie and Jake in a singles match at the main event. Carrie wins by disqualification. And for so those yeah, wondering, too, why Magnum is defending a Mid-South title here, it's because... Part of the deal with Fritz and Watts, where they were partners in Tulsa and Oklahoma City, was that Watts' guys would get exposure on KTVT since KTVT was on cable in Tulsa and Oklahoma City. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, just right there. Gino, Jay, glad to see you. (laughs) Well, yeah, also to add to that, too, it's just you need to give me a reason. Like, it, just for any kind of, like, shifting alliances like that. Just give me a reason. Like, it's the complete opposite, but, like, the Dusty and Terry Funk angle in, was it, 81 in Georgia with Dory Sr.'s uh, pocket 82. watch? 82. 82. Because Ole and Hanson uh, destroyed Terry and TV, and Terry had needed the guy that, he knew that could help him in this battle, and it was his longtime blood rival, Dusty Rhodes. But the brilliance of it is, it's rooted in the idea that Terry Funk knows that Ole Anderson, like, in the previous couple of years, spent a year pretending to be a babyface to earn Dusty's trust and turn on him in a tag match. Mm-hmm. So, he's like, it's a calculated thing. What is the one thing I can do to get Dusty Rhodes to trust me enough to team with me in this match? And it's that he can hold on to Dory Sr.'s pocket watch and he only gets it back if he doesn't turn on Dusty. Or yeah. that Terry doesn't turn on Dusty. And he doesn't turn. Collat- collateral. Yeah. Amazing angle. 
and, and it makes sense. It makes total sense. But yeah, this, it, it, I mean, ends up doing big business, ends up being a, you know, a great feud and angle. But yeah, the beginning of it was definitely flawed for sure. But yes. anyway. All right, John, anything else you want to add to that? Uh, no, I mean, we're, you know, like I said, that to me, I understand the shock value of Chris Adams just coming out and being pals with Gino and Jake. I, I get that, but I don't think that was the best path to go down. Yeah. Yes. All right, so one, of the, one of the little touches I love, too, in Gary Hart's book that he explained was he felt like for the heat to properly get on Adams, he couldn't overtly be the catalyst for the turn. He couldn't be, it couldn't be, oh, Gary Hart corrupted Chris Adams, because then the heat is on him entirely and not on Adams. Yeah. Yeah, so. I don't right. know about that. Chris Adams, ultimately, he's making his own decisions. Like, Gary Hart, you know, dangles a carrot, but it's ultimately Chris Adams who reaches for it. Well, exactly. that's, no, no, that's what I'm saying. That's, that was his idea. That Oh, okay. That it had to go like that. Yeah. I support a tour on October the 5th. El Gran Diablo went to a 15-minute draw with Joel Strombo. Scott Irwin over George Weingroff. Skip Young over Nova Austin. Iceman over Jake Snake by DQ. And Killer Khan, the missing link, went to a double DQ with Carrie and Kevin. So this is a house show, not the TV taping. It's a tour. All right, Terry Gordy and Buddy Roberts will be returning here after an All Japan tour, which should put the rest of any rumors that Prince and Vince McMahon are working together. Ouch. In, in addition, Vince now has added a third TV show in the Dallas area, and another one in Wichita Falls with talks that he plans to promote in Dallas for the end of the year. Okay. Which he does. What, when was the Observer with the story about the alleged Vince press conference in Japan announcing that he and Fritch were merging? Like uh, the uh, issue or two issues before the, the one covering this. Rumors, rumors. You said there was a press conference, Dave. <laughs> I, That's I'm, the a weird story. I'm curious. I got to ask a Dan Gennetti or someone, you know, Roy Lusher, someone that has a big Japanese magazine collection, you know, John, John Boucher, one of those people, to see if there's any coverage of this or if the, someone's working, Dave, in 84. Well, well I mean, it, it's one of those things that was always talked about because they were put the Von Erichs over on television. And it was the, you know, it was the thing that, you know, that Vince wanted to carry. I know me and John talked about this before many times on on shows, but I mean, it's, it's, it is what it is. But obviously the bloom is off that rose. If Vince is now adding more TV in that market and plans promote there. Yes. John, what do you think? What are your thoughts on all this? Well, I mean, they did eventually come to some sort of accord, uh, Vince and Fritz, when Fritz got to use uh, Ricky Steamboat at the 1986 Cotton Bowl show. Uh, Dave explained. Dave explained to me that uh, Fritz turned around and asked for twenty five thousand dollars per appearance for Kevin Von Erich, and that was the end of that. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't gonna happen, no doubt. <laughs> All right, this area is in di- some dire need of some talent turnover because Dave doesn't think Chris Adams switching will alone change the direction the crowds are going. Well, it kind of it's close. Boneros are stale, but since they aren't going anywhere, it's usually suggest they do. The heels, however, are ineffective. Adams may be good, however, anyone associated with that bar is boring. PYTs are pretty bad. Gino's a marginally good wrestler, and his interviews get bored the second time you hear him. Jaden gives good interviews, but his matches are boring. 
Well, well at Dave's least Dave would take the light on all that. Well, Dave's going hard on this crew here, John. What, what, what are your thoughts about this? Well, this was a very dark period of watching this promotion because there was no one for the Von Erichs to take on. Yeah, you had Gino Hernandez, um, but he alone wasn't going to, you know, make the big difference. Um, and I mean, the push they gave that guy, they put the American title and the tech title on him immediately, and they had him pin carry. TV, um, but they needed more. You've got once again, you got three Von Erichs, so you need more heels. Gino by himself wasn't going to do the trick. Um, I think the the of Gino Hernandez and Chris Adams, though, obviously that all turned out way better than I thought it would because uh, Hernandez and Adams versus the Von Erichs, it worked. It drew. Absolutely, absolutely, it did. So, and yeah, I, I guess also... they didn't see it coming. I love Adams, Gino, and Jake with Nicola as a unit too. Oh yeah, they 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 became a very solid unit together after a shaky start. Yeah, so people talk about the dynamic duo team, but the whole group, which doesn't last long, but while they're together, they are just fantastic. Yes. Now, you see, and, I thought I thought Jake was was not a good fit in there. I, I the love idea, Jake Roberts. That's the idea, that he's Nicholas' sleazy boyfriend. And that they both had the same last name, Roberts, kind of made you you, uh, (laughs) raise your eyebrow. Yeah, it was kind of risque at that time. (laughs) Did they ever actually say that they weren't related? (laughs) Not that I can recall. they they, They never did. And Bill Mercer would kind of, like, throw some fuel to the fire on the whole thing, mentioned they both had the last name Roberts, like... Just kind of a taboo okay, relationship. Okay, that is really fucked up to do with Jake Roberts of all people. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know people. Yeah. I, people may know. Well, they know Grizzly's rap. I don't know. I I gotta think they if they even the people who knew didn't know that Grizzly was abusing his own kids. But still, holy shit, is that dark? For 1984, it sure is. Well, it's yeah, it's world class in Fritz, so. <laughs> I, I want to say something about Nicola Roberts. Oh, I just want to say the most. It's the more lighthearted yeah. way to look at it is if Jimmy Hart and Bret Hart were fucking. <laughs> <laughs> you mean they weren't? <laughs> All right, what about Nicola Roberts at this time, John? I, I remember seeing her at this time and thinking someone's going to make a lot of money with this girl. And they did. But it, it wasn't the same Nicola. I mean, Baby fa- Baby Doll totally toned down the Andrea the Giant uh, act in in uh, Crockett. But like, I think if he had stuck with this act, it would have she would have actually gone a lot further. It's possible, but I, I don't know how long that look would have lasted. She would have had to have evolved her look so as the eighties went along because yeah. the eighties fall. It's so it's ni- nineteen eighty four. It's perfect. But I think once you get into like 85-ish, 86 for sure, that kind of look is passe. So she would have to take on some other new type of look. Exactly. But, yeah, but yeah, I mean, the the gimmick and everything, yeah, I mean, it, it, it definitely uh, – yeah, she she definitely did it very well for somebody who was green as grass, you know, in the business of doing that. So, well, yeah, she, she did very well. I mean, you know, all it takes, I mean, once a year, go down to, you know, go to New York, go to Greenwich Village and say, okay, give me the wildest look you got and keep it for a year. Yeah, and just try to, <laughs> just try to evolve with the times. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Now, speaking but, uh, of the- once and for all, though, is, 
and I'm not saying this as a slide on Nicola. I hope people understand where I'm going with this. Is the heat with Baby Doll being called the Perfect Ten supposed to be that Tully is caught saying that this tall former shot put player who's going to be interfering in his matches as a perfect 10. Is that the heat or was that just like a happy accident? I think it was a combination of both. And let's not forget that Nicola was a, a head taller than Tully Blanchard. It looked fabulous on TV. Yeah, exactly. It's all about the aesthetics. Yeah. All right. Dave said the worst thing about the circuit remains the women. As much as Dave can't stand how much they overdid Sunshine and Precious, at least they had a well-done setup for their conflict. Stella May and Nicole Nicholas setup made up no sense, and it shows in the attendances recently. All they do is get in the way of main event matches. Oh, yeah. I, mean, I could not stand the whole Stella May French thing. Um, it, it, you're right. It made no sense. All of a sudden, this truck driver is chasing Gino Hernandez around in his Corvette. Like, okay, Gino's, Gino has the Corvette that can't race away from an 18-wheeler, but let's never mind that. Um, the whole thing was just dumb. Nicola coming in made sense. Stella May, I, I mean, I'm still surprised at the pops she got, but ultimately, Dave is right. This this feud, it is, it's not going going anywhere it's not drawing and also you could have just said since she's her aunt she's not her mom and her dad it's not or it's not going to confuse people you can just say she's ta wrestler tanya west and she's become a truck driver and she's sunshine's aunt you don't have to pretend she's not a wrestler yeah very true well all right so let's talk about stella may as we go to martin lawrence from television where he interviews stella may french and her tractor trailer Oh, wonderful. <laughs> All, right. All right. Here we go. As we look at the thumbnail of a creepily smiling Jake Roberts. Yeah, we'll have him in a sec. Stella May is back, and Mark Lawrence was on hand to talk to her. Well, we've been able to line up Stella Mae French this week to visit with her about some of her problems with Gino Hernandez and Andrea the Lady Giant. That's the bodyguard that Gino has lined up. Here's Stella now coming out of the 18-wheeler. Stella, it's a bodyguard. Bodyguard, yeah. It's some broad dug up out of a graveyard. You know, Hernandez has been after me, and I've been after him a long time. Well, he's not playing fair having her jump me from the back. And I'll tell you one thing right now, Hernandez. I've got a new stick here, lead inside of it. The plain side's for you. The red side is gonna match the strike on this rod that you dug up somewhere's hair. Stella, you've been injured, you're back now. What's next? Mark, I'm getting in my rig right now. And I'll tell you, Hernandez, right now, wherever you're gonna be and wherever that bodyguard's gonna be, I'm gonna be there too, because I'm not afraid of you or her. Stella May French on the road again after Gino and Andrea. Yeah, that's one of the things that's weird, too, is, like, it's made clear that her name is Nicola Roberts and Andrea the Lady Giant is a nickname, but then you have Lawrence and Mercer sometimes just calling her Andrea. I mean, I look at that clip, and I just can't imagine someone being entertained by that. That was, that's, that not was not a good promo. Not a good promo, and it's just so weird, but especially, I mean, she, there's an angle explanation of why she's feuding with Jimmy Garvin. There's no explanation of why she's feuding with Gino. I mean, she, they just... It just drifts over the Gino. I mean, it makes no sense. But it's, it's literally just they need a tall woman to feud with Nicola. 
Pretty much. Pretty much. All right. Mark Lawrence also interviewed Jake, the Snake Roberts, in the locker room. And they were doing it this time. They would have uh, uh, Mark in the locker room interviewing guys. So let's go to Jake and see what, what Jake's talking about here. The locker room, which looked just as convincing as the early 90s WWF pay-per-view locker rooms. <laughs> I mean, at least this is supposed to be the sportatorium and not that they have an identical locker room in every building. But... Yeah, I'm here in the locker room where Jake the Snake Roberts has joined me with thoughts. Oh, gr- gr- great audio editing there, by the way. Yes. Of Chief Jules Strongbow. Thoughts of Chief Jules Strongbow and a little bit of everybody else. You know, when I first came to world class, I made one small mistake. I underestimated someone. That's something I don't usually do, make a mistake. Underestimate somebody, I might do that because I can usually take care of business no matter what type of athlete they are. Well, I made that one mistake. And it's unfortunate that Jules Strongbow was not the man that I made the mistake about because, see, Jules, you're going to have to pay that price for me making a mistake about someone else. (laughs) You, Chris Adams. Well, Jules, you're going to be the first to fall. And I predict that when you fall, you're going to fall harder than any man ever has. When that DDT takes you down to that mat, and whether it's the top of the head or the whole front of your face, when you hit, (laughs) brother, it's over. You know what I mean? I'm talking about smash and out go the lights, Mark. Do you know what that means? Mm -hmm. And I really thank you for bringing me in. Thank you. Here's General Akbar, the boss of Devastation Incorporated. No way out here at bar. But there's just Jake talking about Chris Adams. And this is the day, the TV app, the day after the Adams turn. You know, uh, the, the villain. Yeah. I mean, that's very disorganized. I'm not sure why you're having Jake doing jobs for Chris Adams. Usually if a guy's about to turn, he, he does a bunch of jobs. Poor Jake, he's not even 30 and he is balding. Yeah, he's, uh, <laughs> he's had a hard life at this point. Yeah. Time, yeah. Jake. Um, also, thank God this guy got rescued into the uh, six-man title program because feuding with Frank Hill in 1984 is way below Jake's level. It's <coughs> below a when lot they of people. brought Jules Strongbow in in 1984, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I was like, you know, have you seen this guy wrestle before? I have. He's not very good, and he's not very young. <laughs> yeah, very weird. They had some weird talent come through 84. Buck Zumhall, Jules Strombo. Yeah, they, 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 they weren't all winners, so to speak. Buck Zumhall, right, who allegedly gets banished from... Well, do we really even have to say allegedly with Buck Zumhall? Gets banished no. from the territory because he's caught in a farmhouse with an underage girl. Yeah, exactly. I had not heard that one before. Yeah, that's, that's Buck. <laughs> not shocking. Yeah. No. All right, World Class, we got TV time in Hartford, Connecticut. They also have created a Best of World Class show, which airs at 10 a.m. on Saturday mornings on Channel 39 in, in the Metroplex. And is being sent out to other markets such as San Francisco as well. Well, John, here we go. So WS Center in Dallas with their TV, and now WS getting TV in Hartford, Connecticut. Sure, why not? I mean, if you can get get on the station, why not? It's um, I'm not sure what their TV deal was as far as you know, uh, were they getting uh, splitting ad time or whatever? But I mean, you've already got the show. Why not air it? Yeah, and this best of show Bix is uh, basically the early template of what the Legend show would be. Yeah, it's basically just Gitter. full shows. It's basically just full TV shows. Yeah. Yeah. Well, which is interesting. Was Mid South doing this yet, or would that come later? 
I think that was in eighty five, eighty six. Okay. But uh, but yeah, this is and they're they're starting in eighty two, so they're starting at the beginning of world class, and uh, showing them back at the full shows again. So uh, yeah, interesting concept for nineteen eighty four wrestling. Absolutely. Yeah, it's and, really it's it's not the usual, but they must you know they had successful syndication network. They must have a decent number of stations asking for a second show. They don't own yeah. the KTVT show. They don't really want to spend money to produce a new show. So what else do you have? Exactly. And to close out, World Class also looking at running a show in Chicago very soon. Well, you have to, going to have to wait a while, five years, <laughs> before they run the Chicago area in 1989, which that was a bomb of a, of a, of a series of shows. But, uh, yeah. Well, I let mean, me say this. World Class was red hot in Boston in 83 and 84. The show came on, I want to say, February 1983, and it was red hot right away. And – I get why they might not want wanted to have come in in 83 and kind of started a war, but 84, it's already, you know, Vince is already talking about raiding Dallas. He has three TV shows on. I know they might not have been able to get in the Boston Garden, but why not have a show at BU? Why not have a show at Northeastern? I, I think they really missed out here because I, I draw in they eventually came to Lynn, Massachusetts in uh, 1985, and you got to understand, Lynn is maybe 10, 15 miles out of Boston, but there was no public trans to get to the stadium, and they still drew 9,000. And this stadium was in the middle of a neighborhood in the very dangerous Lynn, Massachusetts, and they still drew a big crowd. So I think they, they missed out by not coming here earlier. Yeah, and... Who knows what they could have done if they would have set their heart to it, but Fritz didn't want to do it. He wouldn't stay home. So, I don't yeah, know. by the time they that came that to Lynn, Forest Hill Stadium kind of it's just in the middle of a residential area. <laughs> yeah, uh, and uh, for this stadium was was the worst. I mean, trust me, Jim Cornette has stories about it. Yeah, yeah. So, what do you want to bet though that they only booked it because it was called the Manning Bowl? <laughs> <laughs> Yes, guess I've got. Yeah. All right, let's close that with the World Wrestling Federation. Dave says, it's being said that George Scott's now wielding enormous power in WWF, which has been which has disenfranchised some employees with Al and Gary Darusha in particular deciding to leave Titan Sports in recent days. That's the Minneapolis crew. Supposedly it is Scott who recognized the problem of the overexposure of Vince McMahon's face being all over the television the lack of work rate, and the no-shows. Scott has restructured the TV, as Vince and Bruno Sammartino will do the Poughkeepsie tapings, Jack Reynolds and Angela Mosca Sr. will handle the Canadian tapings, and the St. Louis tapings will be handled by Roger Kent. Scott having more power will make WF even more dangerous because he may not make as many mistakes handling day-to-day affairs like McMahon did. And Dave knows the signing of Jack Reynolds is something of a coup, since Reynolds did the Pro Wrestling USA tapings on September 18th. And then went to work for the WF a week later. So he'll be on both TV shows for a few weeks, which confused the New York area fans for sure. All right. May I get this in? Go ahead. People, this may surprise people. I was not cheering for the WWF during this war. I wanted the NWA to come out on top. I knew that was the better wrestling. I mean, I got Florida on cable. I got Georgia on cable. I mean, those shows blew the WWF away. 
But when Jack Reynolds appeared on WWF television the week after he had been on Pro Wrestling USA, I could not help but start cracking up. I knew exactly what was going on. And this was Vince saying, you know, hey, you know, here's what I'm going to do to you guys. And he eventually did it. Yeah, I mean, that is so petty. I mean, does he really need Jack Reynolds? No, but it's so petty. And you got Roger Kent, the guy who was the AWA announcer forever. He brings him in the fuck with Vern. I mean, it's Vince. It's what Vince was doing at the time. He was pick, picking guys that, that would be great additions. But he was also picking guys who he knew would just screw with the other promoters. And I mean, absolutely. This, I mean, but that's... Not only is that the wrestling business during a war, I mean, I would think almost any other business would do that. I mean, you know, if he has the chance to kneecap the AWA or kneecap Pro Wrestling USA, he's going to do it. Absolutely. All right. uh, Vince's face all over television. If you haven't watched uh, mid-84 WF, Vince McMahon is like Jim Ross in 1989 WCW. He's everywhere. Um, that was uh, something they had to do, John. I mean, they had to get Vince off all these shows. Oh, totally. Um, I mean, you're right. He was on TNT. He was on championship wrestling. He was on all-star wrestling. At least he had Oakland. All American wrestling. Oh, forgot about that one. At least he had Oakland doing the, the local promos. Um, but you're right. He was all over television and it was, it, it's always good to have, an outsider look in and take a look at what you're doing and say, Hey, here's your blind spot. You're not seeing this. And George Scott, you know, the guy who five years later would get crucified for, uh, you know, how, how he uh, transformed the NWA into one, one of the most boring promotions ever. And then here he is here as the savior of the world wrestling federation. Wild looking. It's interesting too the way Dave described it as Vince making day-to-day mistakes. Cause the way Dave described it to me several years ago when I did that Fighting Spirit article about the expansion was that the reason Vince went with George Scott was that George Scott had experience booking a territory that ran three shows a night, and that's what he needed to keep the machine going. Well, and and, and he was a quality addition here, you know? I mean, whatever you can say about George Scott, I mean, he's one of the main reasons why WWF got as hot as it did. Well, because the TV is also a mess in the months leading up to when he comes in. Oh, God. Yes. Where they're just randomly mixing Pennsylvania tapings and St. Louis footage and showing stuff that was taped months earlier, and there's just no rhyme or reason to it. The famous one being the Snooker Piper's Pit, which was taped months before it actually aired. It was taped in, like, March, I think. Either March or early April, I think. They did the program right away in St. Louis for some reason, but nationally it didn't air till like June. Yeah. You know, one thing, I mean, I've always said this, the the WWF, it always sounds like, you know, Vince had this well-oiled machine from the beginning. He really didn't. 84 and 85, he just threw stuff against the wall and and saw what stuck. Um, But one thing you said earlier about Jim Ross and WCW, like I remember in, in 1991 watching a bunch of highlights from the weekend and just being like, Jim Ross sounds tired. He sounds exhausted because you make him do too much television. Television. Yeah. And then he wasn't even doing what she was in 89. Oh. <laughs> I mean, he was on everything in 89. But but yeah, I mean, Scott, definitely. As much as anybody wants to talk about George Scott in 1989, 
in WA. I mean, he definitely was a monster addition for uh, WF in 1984. Well, you know what it probably is, too? He's coming into somewhere that already had a slower-paced, less angled-up style of TV. So, of course he's going to look better here, Not you know, not just better than he looked five years later. But of course his work's going to look better here than it did in for in Georgia or for um, Leroy McGurk. Yeah. We're going to talk about George Scott in 1989. To this day, I believe, no, I suspect that George Scott was fielding two paychecks when he was booking the NWA. Well, I mean, you aren't the only one. So, I mean, there there, there are people, other people that believe that, and it's very, it's possible. But there's also there's, the dementia theory, though, the cornet and other and, and, and there's that. I mean, there – yeah, yeah, there's there's quite a few things, but yeah, oof, rough time. All right, WF is changing their venue to St. Louis as they are leaving the 10,800-seat Keel Auditorium and are moving to the 20,000-plus-seat Checker Dome, starting with the October 25th show. Last show at the Keel only drew 3,500 fans, so this could be a disaster. WF also returned to the Chase Hotel for TV tapings on September 29th. And those last Sp- like a month or two, right? Yep, yep. And speaking of those tapings, Black Jet Mulligan made his return here, teaming up with Roger Kent to announce those shows. And the rumors are flying fast and furious that Barry Windham won't be too far behind now. And he wasn't. And John, what a blow to Dusty and Crockett as they had put the, the super push behind Barry Windham. They they did the deal where they gave him a Corvette. They were planning their U.S. heavyweight title tournament around him. He was going to have the the, uh, big match at Starcade. I mean, everything was going with Barry Windham, and and then, poof, he leaves. Yeah, uh, for those who don't know, Barry Windham was going to get the push that Magnum TA wound up getting. So Barry walked away from a lot. In one of his shoot interviews from maybe 20 years ago, Barry said that he was making about $125 a week with Crockett. Yes. Which – I'm not I'm not going to call the guy a liar, but I mean, wrestling was changing very quickly. And what usually happened was you would give your notice in the territory, finish off six weeks, go work the television for your new promotion. And so now you've had six weeks of television where now you can be working the arenas effectively. Maybe that's the explanation why Barry wasn't making any money, because I'm I'm guessing he jumped right away from Florida. And, you know, since he hadn't been on television, he wasn't getting booked. I don't know. Well, how long how long was he working for Crockett in this run? Uh, two months, little less two months. Okay, because he came in in August and he leaves first of October, early October. The thing is, though, I'm sure the payoffs are unusually low by Crockett promotion standards. Well, we just read the game. Yeah. Yeah, that's why. Yeah, I mean, he he just said he was starving. He was starving at Crockett, and he had to go with the money. His dad jumped first. So, yeah, he went went with his dad and then returned to join them. So, yeah, and, 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 you know, Barry and Mike got got a big push in WF, tag team champions, and, you know, they had a run. So it wasn't, it wasn't like it was a mistake. And they got got paid good, just Barry got tired of living that life and wanted to go home in 85. So Barry yeah. debuted on TV before Mike Rotundo as, as a single, and as soon as he came on, I'm like, okay, here's the next Intercontinental Champion. Now, obviously, it didn't go that way, but Barry had it going on in 1984. Imagine if you went Valentine over the belt. Ooh. Man. I mean, That's Greg what I was Pete, predicting. 
Yeah, Greg and Tito was, you know, one of the all-time great feuds. But, yeah, imagine Barry and Greg, you know, feuding for the belt. Imagine that would have been the teaming with Tito. Well, that would have been awesome, too. Absolutely. Now, real quick, as far as the TV notes here with St. Louis and stuff. So what had happened was that early in the year, they had added a third syndicated show, Superstars of Wrestling, the show that would eventually become Spotlight. Quickly, it and the St. Louis show ended up being close to the same thing. Because obviously, you know, they weren't airing the snuck a Piper's Pit on there before the rest of the other syndication. But they had the same matches, much of the same commentary, etc. But things started shifting, I guess, because they end up not doing St. Louis tapings anymore. And, you know, I, I have a little bit of footage. It's, I think it's on YouTube of Mulligan and Roger Kent voicing over Toronto matches. But this does not last long. Mulligan sticks around, but Kent is gone what, within a month. Um, yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. One of the last people you'd think had two WWF runs. Yeah, because he came in back later on, and then in the eighties, yeah, in eighty so. around the same time they brought in Ron Trog, the Rod Trongard. Hmm. All right, since almost everyone knows the rumor of Jimmy Snooker's whereabouts, those who don't, your first guess is the same as the rumors. Dave just says that he, he has no confirmation of this. Well, that's a read between the lines thing. John Derber was one at this time, the observer. Well, I, I can see the whole Dave doesn't want to get sued thing, but I mean, it, you know, it was not. As soon as I got the sheets, I learned that, you know, Jimmy Snooker went to rehab. Yes. Which was way overdue. Well. Snuka had been a disaster since his first days in the WWF. I mean, here's a guy they they feel like they need to bring in Buddy Rogers to keep him on a leash. You've had this guy for six months and he's been that much trouble. I mean, I, I think all things considered, they put a lot of eggs in his basket considering you know just how how bad he was as outside the ring. Yeah. It's gone you so over. Okay, so did he did he have a rep for being erratic or anything in any other territories? At least, or at least while coked up, or no. did that really start here because of the money he was making? I think it started because of the money he was making and yeah. the fame he got. Because he was he was as famous as he ever been in his life. He got getting paid big money, and I think it that drove him. You know, drove him over the edge. I yeah. agree, and. Something that plays into all this, too, is that besides just protecting his star, one of the reasons that Vince didn't want Nancy Argentino to press charges the first, you know, when Snuka beat her up the first time in January 83 was that Nancy was driving him anywhere, excuse me, everywhere, because no one else would. Yeah. Ro you know, yeah. none of the other wrestlers Yikes. would ride with him. Rogers quit riding with him because he was doing coke and stuff all the time in the car. And Snuka was basically illiterate and could not drive, so he needed someone to drive him and get him to towns. I think Vince also made a comment to the police like he has no concept of time. And, <laughs> yeah, so like that all plays directly into it, too. But here's the thing. I'm sure other wrestling promoters have—I don't want to use the words covered up, but at least had wrestlers in get into serious legal situations that— they were able to avoid the consequences, but this was public enough and everything that it's, if nothing else, especially since his rep is not, he can go off at any second, no matter what. His rep is that if he's on coke, he has this temper. 
Yeah. Why don't you get him into rehab sooner? Especially once once the expansion starts, once Hogan is there, once Slaughter turns, why aren't you sticking him in rehab then? I can I can shed some light on this. Okay. Rehab isn't a magic pill that solves everything. No, it's not doesn't want to go to rehab there's no sense in sending him it, it, it really is that simple I and mean, is it known yeah, what the specific John's catalyst right. was then though i'm sorry is it known what the specific catalyst is for them sending him to rehab in august uh yeah i think he was told go to rehab or get fired well that's what i'm saying i remember well, hearing I, that somewhere well and that's why i'm also saying that's why i said what i said because that became their mo for years with guys that wanted to go to rehab so what they they should have absolutely applied that pressure, you know, at least a year and a half earlier. But, you know, he, you know, I tried to explain this when I wrote that article about, you know, him and the Nancy Argentino stuff last year. And, you know, I'm, I know you'll agree with me wholeheartedly about this, John. You talk to someone whose fandom peaked on WWF wrestling in 82, 83. You bring up wrestling with to them. The first thing they say is that Jimmy Snuka was their favorite wrestler and they get in trouble with their parents for jumping off their bed or their dresser. Exactly. I had to chastise kids for uh, doing superfly splashes on each other in the pool when I was a lifeguard. I mean, it, <laughs> a true story, man. A guy, yeah. guy would be laying in the, on the deep end and one guy would go off the diving board on him. And I'm like, you can't do that. So anyway, um, yeah, you know what, Bix, that it might really have been that Snuka had become such an amazing star at the end of 82 into 1983 that Vince just, just wanted to take the money and look the other way. I, I can't think of any other explanation. That he had caught such fire. And I wonder also how much the, the um, whatchamacallit, the expansion into California and stuff affected things, too. That he's like, I need to have everyone. Because That's a good point. I want to say the first California show was like within six weeks of the arrest in Syracuse. Yeah, yeah. So they had to do what they had to do. Yes. And well, then, speaking, of course, he gets fired in 85 after um, he's caught going through Kuwaiti customs with hashish and various other substances taped to his body. Yes. I mean, they, uh, they made him go to rehab and they fired him when they were in a spot where they could they could threaten to fire him. I mean, if Jimmy Snuka had disappeared in August 1984, you know, uh, right when he went to rehab, I'm not going to say he wouldn't be missed, but he had definitely been replaced. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, speaking of guys with problems. Campatero said to win the Arcano title on September 15th at the Meadowlands for his legal issues popped up. And that's the reason why Greg Valentine won the title at the tapings in London, Ontario on September 24th. John, did, uh, did you know that story at this time that Pateros was won the title? I learned that story two days ago when you sent me the show wow. notes. I had no idea, but I can tell you. In 1984, I was always wondering, why is Ken Patera, one of the most talented wrestlers on the planet, why is he Robin and John Studd is Batman in that team? It always came across to me that way, and you know, I soon learned, well, Patera might be going away. And can you imagine in 2021 uh, – them letting Ken Patera continue to wrestle as the case unfolded. Like, that would just never happen today. No, not at all. Not at all. And uh, we'll have Patera and Piper's Pit 
uh, during our week at uh, later on this segment. But yeah, I mean, you could tell that they they had something in mind with him, but that legal issue definitely uh, stopped that. <laughs> no, they tapped the brakes on his push for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So he was. Yeah. Go ahead. I was just gonna say that, like. One thing I'll say, I don't, I don't mean this as a defense, but, like, I'm sure Vince is thinking it's the type of shit wrestlers get into trouble for all the time. Everyone's always able to deal with it. He'll get a lawyer. He'll cop some kind of plea and do some community service. He'll be fine. I think You're that probably must right. have been what he's thinking because, it, like, it's obviously it's bad. Well, you know what it is? If it was just throwing the bo- uh, boulder in the window... It probably wouldn't have gotten big. It was the the beating up the cops and the permanently disabling the female cop, I think, that really made it so yeah. that he and Saido were not going to get let off easy. Yeah. Yeah, basically. It, it, there was no way around that. Tonga Kid made his return to the promotion on the October 2nd TV tapings of Poughkeepsie after being in Southeastern over the summer. Yes. One third of the Rat Patrol. Yes. And it's his big push. If you watch the Roddy Piper's Greatest Hits Coliseum video, this gets very confusing because for some reason they insert a Samu Piper's Pit and pretend it's Tonga Kid. <laughs> I yeah. forgotten about that. Tonga Kid in 1984 had one of the weirdest years a pro wrestler ever had. He opens the year. He's he's doing jobs for like Rene Goulet and Iron Mike Sharp. He's going to draws with um, uh, Johnny Rods, I think. Well, and by the end of for the year. Yeah, and by the end of the year, he's main eventing Madison Square Garden. That's just mm-hmm. bizarre. Yeah, it was. And the guy, it's about fast fame. I mean, he's the guy who's very young here. He's like 20 and gets that fast fame, and he couldn't handle it. I think he was 19. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to handle it when I was 19. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he's 18 or 19. All right, his date of birth is? Let's he's see. 19. He turned 19 on October 11th, 84. So, yeah. Oh, wow. So he's barely 19. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah so he's 18 in Southeastern when he's part of the rap. Yeah, imagine that guy in Southeastern, 18 years old. You know he was having a great time <laughs> in the beaches and on those shows. Oh, my goodness. Oh, Woo. my. Yes. Also on those tapings, Brutus Beefcake had Johnny Valiant as his manager for the first time. And, uh, yeah, folks, if you've never seen the early Brutus Beefcake stuff, uh, him and Johnny V were something else together, weren't they, John? They were, and, I mean, it was just another example of how the WWF was getting so silly having a guy doing a male stripper gimmick calling himself Brutus Beefcake and almost never speaking on TV. That was his gimmick for, like, the first year, year and a half. Don't forget, also, for some reason, he was billed as being from Parts Unknown. I do wow, for the first time I do remember that. That's right. Which so he's yeah. not wearing a mask. No, and it's also weird because you know, they eventually announce him as being from San Francisco, but I don't think that's until after he turns face. Which is weird because it always seemed like like you would think of it, wrestling promoters that era, it's supposed to be a heat thing. You're supposed to think the male stripper's gay, but he's not announced from San Francisco until after he stops being the male stripper. <laughs> Yeah, you guys have heard the story. Wayne Ferris was supposed originally supposed to get this gimmick. That's the story. Yeah, yeah. I'm uh, not sure where the story came from, but I, I definitely saw it. <laughs> I saw it in the Observer, so I'm I'm guessing it's it might be true. It's possible, but you know nah. what though? That makes sense because 
I get that as kind of like a heat gimmick that he thinks he's hot stuff. Yeah, I guess. But, you know, nah. like that kind of. I get, I get it. Um, but yeah, the as far as what Chris was talking about, the way that he and Johnny V are together early on. So there is a skit. I think it's mainly just a quick clip in a WWF magazine state segment where Brutus is at a strip club and dancing for women and stripping down to his speedo and stuff. There is a longer version. I wish I still had this. If someone has this, please put it on YouTube. There is a longer version that aired, I'm guessing, on the TBS Sunday show. It was one of the TBS shows where it goes on forever. And it's the most awkward thing you'll ever see. It's like five minutes of Johnny V trying to get the crowd up as Ed Leslie awkwardly tries to sexy dance. Yeah. And he's cheerleading these women going, Brutus, beefcake, Brutus, beefcake. (laughs) So bad. So bad. All right. Add Freddie Blassie to the list of those missing many days because his bad knees. They believe Blassie underwent surgery as well, but that's unconfirmed. Well, of course he's missing dates because of his bad knees and stuff, because that's not the job he signed up for. He signed up for the best <laughs> gig in the wrestling business, where he basically just works TVs, walks to the ring at the beginning of matches at Madison Square Garden shows, and that's it. And yet yeah, he pretty- still gets paid for every show they run. That's not what he signed up for. Yeah, pretty much. You know, doing now, a little schedule. And he's doing a special referee gimmick, uh, too. Well, was was Blassie on the road at this point? Because I don't remember seeing him at the Boston Garden or any of the spot shows. He, you know, his... he would do Spectrum uh, at an occasion. He would do MSG. But yeah, they yeah, he wasn't all everywhere. Like uh, I mean, when they they kept that going way into the eighties, where especially at Toronto, where Monsoon would we would be announcing the shows and talking about. Uh, wonder why he is not here tonight. He must be in the Raptors scouting, you know, something like that. You know, putting right. that out there. That this well, is why Heenan, that's going on deep into the eighties. Heenan would talk about in interviews over the years about how he showed up and didn't like that he wasn't being booked working ringside on so many shows. Yeah, so it, it just is what it is. All right, speaking of house shows. All right, we got some here. Capital Center, Landover, Maryland. Dr. D. David Schultz over Steve Lombardi. Brutus Beefcake over Bob Bradley. Nikolai Volkov over B. Brian Blair. Ken Patera over Rick McGraw. Samoans over North-South Connection by DQ. The tag title match. Kamala over S.D. Jones. Winnie Richter retained the women's title over Fabulous Moolah. Sarna Sarno over Iron Mike Sharp. Greg Valentine over Tony Gurria. And Hulk Hogan retained the heavyweight title, beating Paul Orndorff in a steel cage match. Kansas City that same night, the other crew was there at Memorial Auditorium, 5,500 fans. Uh, Summers were Belomo winning against the Iron Sheik. Jason Ventura against Mandel Bashan. Terry Gordy and Michael Hayes beat the Moondaws by disqualification. Briscoes over Bob Orton Jr. in the spoiler. JYD over George Animal Steel. Roddy Piper over Rocky Johnson. And Andre went to a draw with Big John Studd. I take it that whoever provided results for this back in the day missed the first two matches and that's why we have results but not for everything yeah pretty much all right chicago that crew was in chicago the next day september 30th at usc pavilion for a six thousand. we have matt and Bashan over the spoiler by count out ivan Pusky over bob orton jr summon for jesse ventura north south connection retained the tag titles over samoans big john stud over sd jones george Steele got a title match uh beating hulk hogan by count out in 942 
Iron Sheik over B. Brian Blair, Kamala myself over Belomo, Sergeant Slaughter over Jerry Valiant. And our last match, Terry Gordy and Michael Hayes over the Moon Dolls by Countout. Cleveland. And, oh, I was just going to say real quick with Jesse, this is right when he had the blood clots, right? Um, Possibly. Yes, uh, that was uh, late September 1984 when he missed the Hogan shot at Madison right. Square Garden. Yeah, it was the week for a week because Heenan made his debut there with Stud. Yeah. All right, Cleveland, October the 4th, front of 8,000 in Cleveland. Pat Patterson over Mr. X, David Schultz over Tony Greer by DQ, Ken Patera over Samula, Samu, Judy Martin over Desiree Peterson, Bruce Buca over Salvatore Belomo, JYD over Adrian Adonis, Dick Murdoch over SD Jones, and Andre went to WDQ with Kamala. Then Grand Rapids, Michigan, October 5th, from the 8,000 fans, sellout. Judy Martin over Desiree Peterson, Andre over Kamala by Countout, Green SD over North South Connection by DQ. Patera over Samula, Bruce B. King over Salvatore Belomo, and Dr. D over Steve Lombardi. Man, you see All those right, Michigan numbers and Ohio, and boy, do you realize just how quickly Zane Brasloff was valuable to this company. Oh, yeah, they killed it in that neck of the woods. In the Sheik's old territory, oh, yeah, they were, they were drawing great crowds. But the one thing that sticks out here, John, the fabulous Freebirds, and this is basically the end of them in the World Wrestling Federation, and... uh. What a run they had. I was lucky enough to see the Freebirds live uh, September 10th, 1984 in Manchester, New Hampshire. And I know not a lot of people got to see that, but I did. And on that same show was Hulk Hogan against Jesse the Body Ventura, two guys who would be household names. Ventura, maybe 15 years later, but Hogan right away, this dumpy little ice arena in the bad part of Manchester, New Hampshire. And, you know, they, you know, Freebirds have been in world class and had a great few of the Von Erics. And they come here and they have the David Wolf rub and they give them a you know, big push on television, but they never give them the big push, you know, in the matches. They always are with low mid card guys. And no wonder that they wanted to leave. Well, I mean, they had just started out. I think Vince had bigger plans for the Freebirds. But generally speaking, when you first started with the WWF, I mean, that's the kind of opponent you got. No, you didn't. They didn't put you right in the main event, usually. Yeah, you're right. You're right. They had their their methods at that time. You're right. But uh, yeah, that's uh, this is the crew for that era. Interesting crew. Um, got an interesting mix of names. Now we got one more show to talk about. Also on October the 5th, they ran the Omni in Atlanta, Georgia. Now, they're on TBS at the time. So we have local promos for this show, which would air on national TBS, but still, it's for Atlanta. They're in the body of the show. They're not in a local promo slot. No. So let's go to Hulk Hogan with Mean Gene, and let's hear what Hulk has to say about working the Omni that night. The superstars here on the Superstation in Atlanta. And, of course, when you talk about the greatest names in professional wrestling, you've got to talk about the greatest of the great names, and that would have to be, by virtue of the belt that he wears around his waist, the World Wrestling Federation's heavyweight champion from Venice Beach, California, with an upcoming title defense here in town, Hulk Hogan. Welcome back. I'll tell you what, Hulkamania 
now is alive and well in Atlanta. Well, the thing is, it's like when I come home to A-Town, man, it is my home, Mean Gene. Everywhere I go, since I tied up with this heavy-duty station, everywhere I go, countries, towns, big cities all over the United States, people say, Holster, we've seen you on the Superstation. You are the real world's heavyweight champion. We watch you every week, man, and we love what you're doing. But what you gonna do with this big John Stud? That's the question they're asking me. You know, he's almost the biggest man in the world, Mean Gene. Well, there are uh, one I know for certain bigger, but uh, nonetheless, I know the point you're trying to make. Well, the point I'm trying to make, Big John Stud in Atlanta, I couldn't think of a better place. It's like a dream come true for me to lock up with this student in Atlanta because everything's on my side in Atlanta. The people, Hawkamania, everybody in the crowd is a Hawkamaniac, and they're behind me 195%. Hulk, what about this 10 grand that uh, Big John Stud is just holding out in front of your nose? Well, the thing is, we got to keep our priorities straight. First off, man, is doing it for my people and keeping the WWF the real world's title. Secondly, putting Big John Stud down, embarrassing the man, proving that he's not the real giant in professional wrestling. And then comes along the third thing. That 10 grand man, you know, if I could press him over my head like I did that little Whoa. skinny Sylvester Stone and slam him to the mat, $10,000 would go in the Hawkster's back pocket. Donated to the Hawkamania Party Fund, man. I'd go out in A-Town, the two-bell city, where I'm kicking you-know-what from the time the bell rings until the time the bell ends. I'd go out in that town with that 10 grand. I'd party all night long, man. I might even OD on a protein shake. But the thing is... I'll volunteer. But the thing is, you're welcome, Mean Gene. Big John Stud. All jokes aside, man, we're going for the gold, Daddy, the real world's title. And John Stud, when you step in the ring with me, I got thousands of Hulkamaniacs in A-Town on my side. And what you gonna do when the 24th Pythons run wild on you? Atlanta, get ready. This fan, the world champion, gonna be a great part of this great community. Mm. I, I mean... Hogan had, you know, the early run in Georgia in 79, but that's, you know, the time that he was there. But, yeah, I mean, it's, this is interesting for w one reason. And you never heard this in any of the promos at this time, really, on their television. And, John, you probably back me up on this. Hogan talking about being the real world champion. And I, obviously it's because they're on TBS and, you know, they got the NWA show on there. Yeah, I have never heard Hulk Hogan say that before. I didn't even remember him saying it uh, on WTBS until this ran, and that's what really stood out about this interview. He said it at least twice, I'm the real world champion. Well, yeah. also, isn't this around when the Aftermax stripped them of world title recognition? Uh, that, that was middle of 83. Yeah, no, that, that no, is no, 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 it was 84. I remember seeing the issues... And they're talking about, like, well, Hulk Hogan does defend his title in Japan, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but they were defending the, the decision from a year earlier. Um, in uh, mid-'83, okay. they, they stopped letting Aptor and uh, Napolitano take ringside pictures. They were putting out their own magazine, and that's how Bill Aptor and Pro Wrestling Illustrated, their family of magazines, retaliated by – recognizing only Ric Flair or Harley Race, excuse me, and Nick Bockwinkel as the real world's heavyweight champions. And then they'd write articles about um, why is Bob Backlund defending the ch championship against Samoan Afa, it's, you know, stuff like that. Why doesn't yeah. he defend against scientific wrestlers? They're, they're, you know, and they're making it clear, nothing against Bob Backlund, this is against the WWF. 
Exactly. Yeah. And because of Victory Magazine, too. You know, Victory Magazine starting up and yeah. not all that. So, yeah, that. Interesting. They're not going to help their competition. WWF has shown that in 1984. Oh, no. Now, one man who had a track record in Atlanta and uh, is somebody who definitely was a, a, a favorite among the fans there. Ronnie Ronnie Piper, who is, of course, a heel here, but it's Ronnie Ronnie Piper in Atlanta, so he's going to be cheered no matter what. So let's go to him and Freddie Miller at TBS Studios at Techwood. And Ronnie Piper has his thoughts on uh, the Omni show coming up. Yes, and there's more of this on YouTube because this is part of a video that's just him hosting the TBS show with Freddie. That mm-hmm. Week. Omni 815, Hulk Hogan, the WWF heavyweight wrestling champion against John Studd, big John Studd for the title. It's a sensational night, ladies match, and this man, yes, our guest today, will be there, Rowdy Roddy Piper against Chief J Strongbow. It's going to be a super night. Living color, you're talking about the Omni in Atlanta. In the Omni in Atlanta, you bring on Slaughter, you bring on them all. I think I just might fight everybody in the Omni, everybody on the card. There ain't nobody tougher ever walked through the doors of the Omni in Atlanta Hot Rod. I'm going to bring out Chief J. Strongbow. All them feathers there. Think he's so hot. Take him in. By the time I'm finished with him, he'll be holding on to his horse with his head feathers, crying, picking up McDonald's gift certificates, worried about litter all over the place. Jack, you're talking about the most incredible wrestler in the world today. You're talking about the legend killer. You're talking about the man that put Jimmy Snook out. You're talking about the man that brought Bruno San Martino down to his knees. I will fight anybody at any time. This time it's going to be in the Omni, brother, in Atlanta. You're talking about the home of the lot. Best Buster, Hot Rod himself. Bring it on down. I don't care. Tell Bring it on down. Friday, October 5th, 815. The Omni in Atlanta, Atlanta. 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 be there. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Piper, he's, he's on a roll there, John. And, I mean, he had just, you know, the year earlier, two, well, two years earlier, you know, been basically almost the king of Atlanta for a short time. And it's interesting they put him against Strongbow. At the Omni, because they put him against a guy who they knew that Piper would, he was going to be cheered by the fans. So they put him against a guy who really didn't matter to the Atlanta fan base at that time. So smart move in that way. Uh, I mean, it's a little bit of false advertising, though. He's really going to be wrestling Chief J. Strongbow's corpse. I mean, Strongbow was so (laughs) finished by 1984. It was insane. But you're right. It was it was the right move. Just shovel him in there against a, a baby face that a doesn't matter if he does a job, and b that no one in Atlanta cares about. Exactly. And yeah, I mean, Piper's rolling here. I mean, he was motivated on this promo, absolutely. Very motivated. Yeah. All right, Mister Wrestling Two made his shocking debut at the Omni on October the fifth against Rene Goulet. He said the reason why he went to WF was because Vince promised him some promotional rights here. <laughs> yeah, really. It's also said he doesn't get along with Ole Anderson either, so he wouldn't work for him. Well, there you go, there. And he does. Well, Mr. Wrestling 2 and Ole Anderson, two guys who couldn't get along with anyone, couldn't get along with each other. What a shock. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about the Omni. 2,000 fans at this show, and I was at this show with my oh, nice. dad. And this is the. I talk about this on the, the Way of the Blade podcast I did with Phil Schneider. Talking about the bus lawyer telling me Rich last battle of Atlanta match. This is the first show that I really have memories of going to. And uh, yeah, what a show this was. Now, during the show, Billy Jack was introduced to the crowd from inside the ring. Yes, Billy Jack is about to make his very, 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 very short lived 
WF run here. Yes. And uh, he was sitting in the crowd because he was he just drove up from Florida and was at the Omni. And, yeah, they introduced him. So, And he's not Billy that. Jack Haynes yet. He becomes Billy Jack Haynes oh, no. and t- talks about taking on his father's name when he's in Dallas. That's Dallas. Yeah, that's right. All right, Susan Starr with Lonnie Kai. Nikolai Volkov over Rick McGraw, Mr. Rusto over Nagalay, Piper over Chief J. Strombo, Chuckyard Dog over Mr. Fuji, DeBriscoe's over the Moon Dogs, Paul Wonder over Ivan Pusky, and Hogan retained the WF title beating Big John Stubb by countout. And yes, I do remember that well. Um, Hogan was insanely over among those 2,000 fans at that show. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was it was quite the experience for a young five-year-old me and uh, yeah, my, my earliest true wrestling memories of a live show at this show. So That's wrestling to awesome. Yeah. Wrestling to the WF. Um, that had to be culture shock for someone like you, John, who had seen him on TBS forever and ever and ever. And here he is. And he doesn't, he doesn't appear on TV much, but still just seeing him with this crew. Very weird. I honestly don't remember seeing Mr. Wrestling 2 on TV at all. I know he appeared on one of the Madison Square Garden shows that was televised, but yet I did not have access to. The only way I knew Mr. Wrestling 2 was in the WWF was was through the magazines. Yeah, because he would appear he appeared on MSG, appeared on a Meadowland show. Um but that's basically about it. It was how, mainly, you know, uh, the the big house shows that well, he would be the on. TBS Studio match or two in TBS Studio, yes, the TBS Studio stuff. That's right. That, yeah, that's his most high profile TV matches were on those shows. Yeah. Okay. And, well, I I honestly don't remember those. I mean, I I may have just missed that. Yes, yeah, the one ones afternoon. before. Yeah, the, the ones for WrestleMania. You know, uh, when they were in the studio for the month, right before Crockett took over, Gorilla was there in the studio, and there was Georgia Championship Wrestling again. And they used the state. They used the uh, backdrop that that Crockett would use. Oh, yeah, I I, well, I must have missed that. Either, either missed those shows or completely forgotten about it. Yeah, I do. Oh, there's a remember bunch of learning. Like well, you the, find them really the, interesting too. I bought the tape from you. <laughs> they had that stuff for the first time. I was like, I wanted to see it because I hadn't seen it forever, and uh, I saw you had it on your list. I was like, I got to buy this tape. And All I right. My memory's fading. Well, <laughs> I confess. We're getting older. What can we say? But there you go. So wild stuff. And yes, on YouTube. In fact, I think I uploaded the YouTube. All right. Uh, Piper's Pit for our week with Ken Patera. So let's go to uh, Piper and Ken, who's managed by Captain Lou Albano here. Are we going to hear some bars from Owner of a Lonely Heart as it starts playing? Possible. Ronnie, Ronnie, Ronnie Piper, what a pleasure and an honor to be at the side of the legend destroyer. If I can only have managed you, Ronnie, and let me tell you something, it's a great honor and a pleasure to be here with the world's strongest human being, with the world's greatest athlete, the one and only Ken Patera. No, you know, let me, let me just say something, Mr. Patera. All these people out here who stand behind all them good doors like Sergeant Slaughter, Hulk Hogan, Petito Santana, Shooker, let me, I want you to hear what the world's strongest man has something to tell you a story, please tell them exactly what you say. Well, I'm going to tell you exactly what your heroes are, the people that you stand up and worship day in and day out. Exactly what kind of people they are. Three and a half years I've been out of the wars of the WWF, and I love the WWF, that's why I came back. 
And my motto is, win if you can, lose if you must, but always cheat. Well, I'm going to tell you something, Ronnie. There's a lot of other people around here that have the same philosophy. Yeah, and slaughter. A lot of them. Well, I'm going to tell you what happened. Four weeks ago, a month ago, I was leaving an arena going down a corridor that was dimly lit. From behind, I was attacked by four or five, perhaps four people. I was hit over the back of the head with a chair, dropped to my knees, dug into a door. Three people behind the door took the door, raised my arm into the door jam, and started slamming the door on my arm, trying to tear it from my shoulder. The only thing that saved me that I not any of them. I don't know who it was. But before it's all through, I'm going to find out exactly who they were. As I was down and out, and finally I jerked my arm away. So much, they ran off as I was regaining conscience. But I'm going to tell you something. Wow. Am I the only one getting the vibe that he's trying to shoot his own baby face turn out of concern he's going to prison? I mean, it's possible, but that's just that's just a weird deal there. Very he's weird. He's clearly trying to shoot his own angle. Yeah. I mean, just more evidence that in 1984, the WWF just, you know, was was on the fly. You had, had no idea what they were doing next. You know, one week, Patera's with Albano. You know, it's 1977 again. Then a few weeks later, he's with Heenan until he goes away. Yeah. And speaking of, as we close out, some of Bobby Heenan's closest friends have told him he made the biggest mistake of his career jumping to the WWF last week. But there's no way to turn back now. <laughs> sure. Big mistake, Bobby. <laughs> oh, I mean, as as they were telling him that, were there rim shots going off after every sentence? This is the craziest thing I've ever read. Bobby Heenan wanted to go to the WWF long before they had expanded. In his book, he said that he called like twice a year and he'd be told the same thing. Hey, we have three managers. We, you know, we can't have four managers. And then when Graham Wizard died, Heenan said, look, I'm not trying to come across like a vulture and Vince said don't worry about it stay you know sit tight we'll have a place for you and about a year later he was the number one manager in the WWF yeah so yeah I'd say he made the perfect decision in his career so to speak yeah, also, so. why would why would anyone think this is a bad decision when he's obviously going to be pushed and at this time he's going to be doing a lot less work AWA guys. He wanted, but, yeah. It's AWA guys. That's all it is. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, of course. And and I, I think what they might have been saying is, hey, you know, this isn't going to work. Vince is going to spend until he's out of business. Well, you, you think the AWA is not going to take Bobby Heenan back? They already did once when he went to Georgia. Yeah. And he thought so. he was leaving for good in Georgia, too. Yeah. But anyway, the rest is history. So there you go. As is this show. And, uh, John, we definitely thank you for being on with us. So plug away, my man. Uh, what's going on in your world right now? Well, if you enjoyed hearing me on this show, uh, I thank you. And I want to invite you to listen to Stick to Wrestling. It comes out every week. Um, if you just put in – if you put in McAdampod, www.mcadampod.com, it comes up. And if you're also interested in hearing about wrestling from 1984, we have a big announcement coming up. So there's your big market tease. Oh, okay. All right. That's interesting. Considering we did 1984 on our show. So yeah, that's uh, 
That's awesome. So, yeah, we definitely thank you for being back with us, John. Thanks for having me. I had a blast. Yeah, we'll definitely have you back on again in the future, as always. Thank you. Next week on Between the Sheets. It's a Patreon requested show. Bix, who's our Patreon that requested it? Patron that requested it? I'm going to double check to make sure. Sorry, I had the wrong month up in the calendar for some reason. It is Kyle Rieger. Kyle Rieger. All right, Kyle. Kyle wanted us to go back to 1999. And uh, we got uh, Gorilla Monsoon passed away during our week. We'll talk about that in his funeral. We got Darren Drostoff getting paralyzed. We'll talk about that and the aftermath of that, especially in the New York media. We got all kinds of stuff going on in Japan, as always, including WF uh, sending talent to FMW and uh, all the indie stuff there. We got, we'll talk about the revival of Stampede Wrestling and how that's not working in Calgary. We got uh, the U.S. indie scene. We'll talk about ECW and the old Mid-South Territory, plus all the drama going on there at the time and stuff that we didn't talk about in our ECW on Teen and Patreon show. And uh, we got the Memphis mayoral race and the results of that and how that fits Jerry Lawler. We had Jesse Ventura and Playboy Magazine. And plus Vince Russo and Ed Ferrara, um, they joined WCW, and Dave Meltzer has his thoughts on how all that could work out and all the other major changes going on WCW at the time, including an interesting Nitro. But the main thing that was on this show, the reason why it was picked, the maybe the worst wrestling pay-per-view in the history of wrestling pay-per-views, Heroes of Wrestling. All that and more next week on Between the Sheets, and we may have a guest. Yes, we may as, have a as of right now. Everyone we've talked to so far is not available next week. Well, for I, one of the one of the people that I've talked to is now giving me a maybe. So I haven't talked to you about this yet. But is this someone yeah, that so, we also tried to book for last week's show? Uh, yes. Okay. So there you go. So hey, all can that, I do something really quick? Sure. I, in 1999, when Russo and Ferraro left the WWF for WCW, I had people in my email group who were really smart to the business. And I, I'm talking multiple people who said the uh, basically WCW just won the war. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I'm not making this up. I was encouraged, too. And I'll talk about that on the show. I was All encouraged, right. too. Well, but... and also... Yeah. It's become clear, especially with hindsight and looking at how their WCW stuff looked, it's clear that throughout 1999, I guess with the IPO coming up, that Russo and Ferrara had more autonomy than non-Vince writers or bookers had had before. Like, it's pretty clear. Like, I I don't think the way Russo tells the story, where Vince was basically completely hands off, I don't think that's true. But like most of but he the got ba- people to believe it. No, but I think it's close enough to true that it's not a total lie because all of the all of the bad Russo hallmarks we see in WCW are there in '99. They're not necessarily there in throughout '98, but in '99 they're there. So obviously we'll talk about that. And this is this is I guess next week. So was this the first week of shows they do? no because they they debut at no, the end no, of no, the no, month. No, 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 they're this not charging creative yet. Jumped, but haven't booked any is- shows yet. Yeah, this is the, the the aftermath of them jumping, yes. So all that more next week on Between the Sheets. All right, John, we appreciate it, man. Thank you. Thank Big, you. Thank you, as always, for the rock of the show. And this is Chris saying so long from the Peach State of Georgia. Mm-hmm.
Special edition number 60, five full years. I'm your host, Chris Zoner, joined as always by my host, David Bix and Span. And Bix, here we go, five years. Hard to believe, isn't it? Yeah, it kind of is. And we obviously thank everyone who's been sticking with us or 
however much they can support us throughout all this on the Patreon. Yeah, so that, some of you people have been supporting us for 60 months, basically. So, uh, wow, that, that is amazing that, uh, that you've supported us for that long. And of course, those of you that have uh, came through at various times, left, came back, whatever, we definitely appreciate uh, all of you and everyone that has uh, took part in the Patreon, uh, whatever little or big you gave, we definitely appreciate that. And we hope that uh, you continue to support us as best you can. As uh, We're going to continue the Patreon series with a lot of great ideas uh, going forward. Um, you know, some, some ideas uh, we thought maybe could be one time, maybe at the way to, you know, with uh, how these formats go on these shows. Uh, so like this one, I was hoping to get this one done in one show, but that didn't happen. So we're going to have two shows on uh, the one, the subject we're going to talk about now. But We uh, knew that could happen. Well, hopes hopes were, were there. But anyway. Um, but yeah, so um, yeah, this is uh, an interesting show as we're going back 25 years to discuss the birth of the new world order and um hard to believe it's been that long but um here we are and wrestling was never the same after the the new world order and the the whole the beginning angle and everything going on and it's it's definitely interesting to go back and look at a time in wrestling history where i mean when you watch the television like i do and uh watch the older stuff Especially the mid-90s. I mean, the contrast between pre-NWO and after the NWO is staggering as far as television, how everything's presented, especially in WCW. Would you agree with that statement? Uh, oh, absolutely. If just because, for better or worse, the NWO adds a little bit of an edge... Well, it just changes the whole thing. It changes the dynamics of, of everything in the company. Yes, yes. I, you know, I don't think it's actually mentioned outright here, but the one, the one big, I mean, the biggest change is that you end up for a while with this weird limbo where everyone sort of has de facto babyface moments in WCW, even if they're heels and feuding with other babyfaces, and it kind of it's something you want to have happen in the scenario. I mean, I don't know if they pulled it off as best as they could have, but it really does shake up everything. Yeah, because I mean, traditional—it's not traditional wrestling anymore. Um, what was you know wrestling before? It's changed because now you have this faction of these heels that are these cool heels. Yeah, but there was the full horseman and stuff like that, but there was nothing like this where you had this group that was declaring war on a whole company. And yeah, whether it's babyfaces and heels in the traditional sense, they all have the, sh the common rival of this faction. And as we'll talk about more, more about this as we go along, but yeah, it just, it completely changed the business in, in that way. And, uh, and for the and for the better in a lot of ways, because she got back and watched some of that WCW television from early '96, and it's like, wow, 
You know, they're in that period where Hogan has got his creative control and all the main angles are involving him are just garbage. Women's shoes, hot coffee, the Alliance 10, the Hulkamania, Z-Gangsta, the Ultimate Solution, Doomsday Cage. And they got good talent underneath, but it's just like, wow. And and then the outsiders come in and it's just like, Nitro's changed forever. So let's get into it. All right, let's uh, go to the week of June the 3rd. Torch, June 8th, Observer, and Lariat, June the 10th. In one of the most tumultuous weeks in the history of Titan Sports, had a pay-per-view nearly destroyed by Mother Nature. It had its own spoof comedy segments knocking this competition turned into a strong angle for the opposition. And had the man scheduled to be their pay-per-view main event heel, scheduled to be their main event, pay-per-view main event heel for at least through the end of the summer, give notice. Toning down would have been up to that point considered one of the company's most creative storylines in a long time. Uh, who was that, Bix? That has to be David, right? Sounds that way, yeah. Yeah, because King of the Ring hasn't happened yet, so he has a pay-per-view main event coming up. And create one of their most creative angles in a long time. I can see why, they, why Dave would call it that. And why did he give notice again? He just gave notice to be able to renegotiate his contract or and test Yeah, because he stays. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't leave. But you had to be able to give notice to do that. Yeah. Striking back gets the work from interpromotion angle started one week earlier by WCW Nitro. Vincent Mann and Webb here to prepare lawyer statements in the June 3rd Raw show that Diesel and Razor Ramon were no longer part of the World Wrestling Federation, but that they intend to portray themselves as the stars they once were and were participating in a ruse that they're still part of the WF when they're under contract with a rival wrestling organization. They then encouraged their fans to call their 900 number. Or log on to America Online for more details of the ruse perpetrated by Diesel and Razor Ramon. The stars they once were. In the addition, stars they once were. They were uh, on your April pay-per-view. One of them was in the main event. Find that real quick while I read this. I want to hear Vince say that. Yeah, uh, and, let me see. That's the June third raw. And uh, let me see if I can find it on YouTube because it's a, otherwise I'll have to switch to the VPN in the middle of the thing. But let's see. All right, in addition, WF released a legal letter sent to Scott Hall, which informed Hall they believed he was infringing on Titan's intellectual property rights by still portraying the Razor Ramon character in WCW, and that Titan would be withholding all future payments, virtual merchandise checks, and, and the main in-your-house pay-per-view payoff, along with other monies not yet paid him. They owe Hall until the matter is settled. All right, the WF's online message stated... In an effort to further the blurred alliance between Ted Turner's wrestling organization and the World Wrestling Federation, Scott Hall portraying WF wrestling character Razor Ramon recently appearing on WCW's television programming. The World Wrestling Federation wants to make it clear that there's no agreement with the Turner organization, nor will there ever be. Therefore, the following letter was sent to Scott Hall in an effort to make him aware of the copyrights in which he and World Championship Wrestling infringed. Dear Mr. Hall, this letter will sort of put you on notice of your deliberate infringement of Titan's intellectual property rights in connection with your appearance this past Monday on WCW's Nitro show. Having reviewed the tape of your appearance, the text of the various statements made by you during your appearance and the explicit references to past and ongoing storyline to Titan Sports, it is obvious that you were attempting by your appearance to suggest to the consuming public that you and the others from WF were now going to be appearing on Turner Networks and WCW programming as some sort of interpromotional storyline. The entire theme of the program, buttressed by WCW personnel afterwards, was that WF wrestlers were going to be wrestling WCW performers 
and that you were leading a group of Dotel in that effort. This is, of course, completely false, and it was intended to confuse the viewing public. To further this attempt to mislead and confuse the public, you stay completely within the character portrayal of Razor Ramon and register trademark of Titan Sports during your appearance on Nitro. Indeed, both you and WCW personnel never mentioned the name you intend to wrestle under WCW, choosing instead to tell the audience that they knew who you were. You dress like Razor Ramon and utilize the Hispanic accent given to you by Titan as part of the character portrayal. Titan, of course, has no objections whatsoever to you portraying a new or different character devised either by you or WCW, but will vigorously exercise its rights in connection with your intent to pawn off or suggest to the consuming public that your WCW appearances are in the character of Razor Ramon. In the capacity as a WF wrestler or as part of some interpromotional matches involving WF's participation. Accordingly, this is devised you that Titan has exercised its rights under the contract it had with you and will be withholding future payments from you until this matter is first cl- further clarified. Titan further reserves all rights it has to take any and all further actions as may be appropriate. And it's noted here the letter seemed to make no difference to WCW and Hall, which continued their planned angle with no backing down on June 3rd's Nitro. It's believed that it had been the first time since war at 1984 that a promotion has called another promotion's angle a ruse and tried to hurt a competing group's top angle on its own television show. All right, it looks like I found the uh, part of Raw where Vince reads this statement, which is in the middle of the Hunter Hearst Helmsley versus Jake the Snake Roberts main event. Huh. I guess I don't need to screen share for this, so here we go. No, no, just, yeah. Hunter Hearst Helmsley. Into the arm bar now. Jake the Snake Roberts would like nothing better in his career to be the king of the ring. Jake has made a triumphant comeback to the World Wrestling Federation thus far. Despite, by the way, his 43 years of age. Yeah, well, he better hope he wins king of the ring because for sure this is his last hurrah. And speaking of last hurrahs, of course, Ted DiBiase is at his last hurrah here in the World Wrestling Federation. But likewise, a number of other individuals also have had their last hurrah no longer associated with the World Wrestling Federation in any manner. Big Daddy Cool Diesel as well as the bad guy Razor Ramon. And it has been reported that both of these individuals intend to pawn themselves off as the stars they once were here in the WWF and to furthermore perpetuate some sort of ruse that they're still representing the World Wrestling Federation while actually under contract to a rival organization. And right now, Hunter Hearst Tumsley is taking an exit <laughs> as it relates to Jake the Snake Roberts, and Jake the Snake thus far has befuddled on oh, Hunter Hearst Tumsley. Furthermore, it's amazing how he can do that and then go right back into the match. <laughs> Why even do that during a match? Why not, why, why not just do that in the aside? You know, I guess because they're not live in the building. It's obviously pre-tape. Yeah. Or they're in, the, they're in the studio. So I guess they can't do some type of... There's something you could do where it's not wedged into the middle of a match. Do it during the ring intros or something. During the entrances. Even. <laughs> a ruse. The stars they once were. Six weeks ago. <laughs> you know, we haven't talked about this yet. It, one of the crowning achievements of Eric Bischoff's angle here is the fact that he used all that bull, being or Ted bullshit in his favor. Yes. <laughs> I mean, good Lord. Vince's pettiness towards Ted Turner basically set all this up. Yes. 
and I didn't include in the notes, but there are various, uh, it looks like the Time Warner uh, Turner merger is going through items in the newsletter. Well, you know, that doesn't matter here. But I'm just saying, it's hilarious how Vince's petty bullshit, and which we talked about on, on this show before, how it was a big waste of television time to do all that stuff when you could be pushing your talent, but yet you're pushing this bullshit you got in your mind against Ted Turner. And then what what does WCW do? Use that shit against you in this big angle. Yes. And also something we should remember, too, because I don't think this part is really looked at or talked about enough anymore. Those billionaire Ted skits did eventually get very unfair and twisted and mean-spirited. Are you surprised by that? <laughs> no, I mean, this is but the, specifically, though, the the lithium stuff. Oh, yeah, we talked about, I mean, we talked about that. I mean, I it's, it's, it's just, that's Vince. That's what Vince does. But especially through the lens of, like, 25 years later, Kudos to Ted Turner for being so open about his mental health issues. Yeah. You know, like, it was it was bad then, especially since Vince also kind of tried to imply, including later, like a few years later when he's on Conan, he tried to tries to make it seem like, like lithium is like a drug that gets you high and that Turner's abusing it. It's just so stupid. So it's like, yeah, good for Eric. To hear this entire show. Support Between the Sheets on Patreon for just $5 per month. Go to patreon.com slash between the sheets.